The Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning. Good Monday morning. <sighs> you know, Terry reminded me. Well, first of all, this is the Matt Townsend Show, and this is Jeff Simpson. If you're just joining us and wondering, why am I not hearing Dr. Matt Townsend? Or maybe you were thinking, Matt sounds a little younger today. We have been accused of sounding the same. So, uh, yeah. Anyway, that maybe this is my little April Fool's joke to you. Uh, and Terry reminded me before the break that we did celebrate April Fool's Day over the weekend, but I completely forgot about it. Not that I'm the kind of person to go around pranking people and making them look like a fool, but I have been the beneficiary of some great April Fool's jokes over the years. Would you like to hear some? Let's let's hear it. Okay. So we have these cousins in our family that their April Fool's Day is very much a thing for them. And we came home one day to discover several things did not look quite right in our home. For instance, my dad used to have hundreds of videos. And he would take them out of the cardboard sleeve that they'd come in and he'd put them in a plastic case. But the cardboard sleeve would then be turned into a cover for the plastic case. And uh, they thought it'd be funny to take all of those movies and put them in different cases. We're talking hundreds of movies here switched around into different cases. So they did that and they put shoes from one room into another room and – Mixed them up that way. And then, of course, you've got the good old classic, let's put some peanut butter uh, behind the handle of the refrigerator door so that when you go to reach for that and pull it open, you get peanut butter all over yourself. Or, you know, the the hose attachment for your sink? Yeah. You wrap – a rubber band or some kind of a band around the, the handle trigger. so that when you turn on the faucet... It just sprays you. Oh, and it gets you every time. <laughs> every time. Oh, my goodness. So I'm the fool. Or at least I was the fool. Luckily, nobody did anything like that. Any? Did you have any uh, pranks pulled on you, Colin? Um, I didn't have any pranks pulled on me, no. But um, I saw a couple of... Uh, cool ones google did the you know how google has the google home yeah they said they made one for your back porch and they called it the google gnome the google gnome yeah the video for that is hilarious Hmm. it was really good netflix had a good one last year when uh they aired a promo from john stamos and he made it seem he did this promo saying that he was going to have this special on Netflix that was all about who John Stamos really is, you know, referring to himself in the third person. And then you go down the page and it's movies that John Stamos likes or movies that John Stamos will watch alone and cry, you know, things like that. And then, of course, it was all just a big, huge prank. Didn't Netflix also air like there's a video of John Stamos like going to the Netflix headquarters and like flipping out? Oh like yeah, yeah, stuff in the headquarters. There are people in the waiting room. They're like, they, "What's going on?" They did that after April first, I believe. You know, because he was pretending like he was under the impression that he was going to have his Netflix series, and yeah. <laughs> anyway, so that's a good one. And then, of course, always be weary when you get a wedding announcement that says 
that so and so that the the Mister and Missus so and so will be getting married on April thirty first. It's yeah. always a red flag that that's not true because there is no such date as April thirty first. <laughs> so just be on the lookout and don't be made a fool. <sighs> Colin Tanner, by the way, is standing where I normally yes. stand, making Absolutely. me look like a fool today. <laughs> I wish he we does. Had, do we have a soundbite of he did. Uh, Mr. T saying, don't act a fool? Uh, <laughs> you probably won't find one because the line is actually, I pity the fool. I pity the fool who don't... Uh, Eat all your greens now. There you go. Anyway... Hopefully you enjoyed April Fool's Day and uh, nobody got hurt. That's the important thing. Just don't get hurt. You can have some fun, but it's good to be kind. Anyway, we'll uh, continue to talk April Fool's pranks, or maybe we won't. I'm going to keep you in suspense. (laughs) But in the meantime, let's uh, head over to Terry South, who's going to let us know what's going on around the rest of the country. Terry, what's up? The Senate Judiciary Committee will vote on President Trump's nomination of Judge Neil Gorsuch to the Supreme Court today. The committee currently seats 11 Republicans to just nine Democrats, so Gorsuch is expected to easily sail through that voting. This committee's ballot is an important step towards Gorsuch's main confirmation vote, which Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said Sunday will happen on Friday in the whole body of the Senate as they vote. Do you know if is this committee split half and half Republican and Democrat? Well, I just said there they have uh, committee currently seats 11 Republicans and nine Democrats. (laughs) Okay, I was just making sure that you were paying attention. So yeah, the committee is because the Republicans hold the majority, they have the the uh, the edge in that committee when it goes to the the full Senate for the vote on Friday. That's where the uh, the uh, right now there's like there's some Democrats who are kind of coming across the aisle. And they need eight of them. They have three, so that comes into more of a of a, mm. a game, I guess you could see as the week goes on. Here's Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer on the vote. It looks like uh, Gorsuch will not reach the sixty vote margin. So instead of changing the rules which is up to Mitch McConnell and the Republican majority, why doesn't President Trump, Democrats, and Republicans in the Senate sit down and try to come up with a mainstream nominee? Look, when a nominee doesn't get 60 votes, you shouldn't change the rules. You should change the nominee. So, yeah. Mm. The Democrats, uh, as you heard there, the stance is just change it. If we don't like it, change it. And the Republicans aren't going to do that. So right now they they need eight Democrats. They've had three that have uh, said they will cross the aisle and vote for this candidate for uh, the Supreme Court. So we'll see how that goes throughout the week. I I mean, I can see the mindset of, look, if we can't agree on somebody, let's find somebody we can agree on. But it seems like the Democrats are just going to say, put in a Democrat and then we'll agree. Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of how it's it's really an interesting uh, discussion they have. Like, do do something that I would agree with. For right. Once. Well, you won't do it for me. So it's just, yeah. Uh, President Trump on Sunday morning lambasted critics who said his efforts to replace and repeal Obamacare were fraught, saying a new deal in, is in the works. Anybody, especially fake news media, who thinks that repeal and replaces of Obamacare is dead, does not know the love and strength of Republican Party. Trump wrote on Twitter. It's really interesting trying to read twitter uh talks on repealing and replacing obamacare are and have been going on and will continue in such time as a deal is hopefully struck he added so health care is still out there we'll see okay if we'll, we'll maybe get a round 
two or three. I'm not sure where we're at right now. Uh, two people were killed in Louisiana Sunday morning when a tornado tore through the area. Victims were identified as a mother and her three-year-old daughter, whose mobile home was flipped off its foundation and destroyed by the storm. Louisiana, Mississippi, and a thin sliver of Texas are bracing for t- tornadoes, massive hail, high winds, and uh, as a, a storm system passes through the area later today, this afternoon, the Weather Channel reports uh, the storms are going to sweep through kind of the south there and then through Georgia, Florida, South Carolina, North Carolina. So that mm. whole area, whole region is going to be seeing storms and possibly uh, tornadoes later today. Is this the sliver of Texas that, that you lived in for a couple no, of years? No, no, no. I was in West Texas. Oh, it's okay. boring out there. Um, and finally. <laughs> that is true. Yeah. A Massachusetts man who sued a pair of Dunkin' Donut owners because he said he was given butter, a butter substitute, when he asked for real butter on his bagel, oh. has won a settlement. He won. He went to court and won. The Boston Globe reports that uh, Jan Polinick sued uh, his suits named two companies that together own more than 20 locations of Dunkin' Donuts. The lawyer uh, acknowledged that his client's complaint is a minor thing, but they decided to sue to stop the practice of representing one thing and selling a different thing. Uh, the lawyer did not disclose the settlement terms. Uh, the attorney for one of the franchises confirms that the case has been settled and the stores have changed their butter serving protocol. See, I would have <laughs> I would have held out uh, for a deal with I can't believe it's not butter to be their new spokesperson or something. Well, again, that's it's not butter. <laughs> you didn't give me real butter. Guy wants butter. Where's so, the real butter? This is the uh, this is the type of person that would sue Subway because their uh, foot long sub is not. Exactly 12 inches long. Right, and it's not. If you measure, it's just a little short there. Wow. I always thought it was funny, you know, on KFC's packets of butter, it says butter-flavored spread. Now I know why that's there. <laughs> so they don't want, they don't want to they get don't sued. They don't want to get sued. Oh, but you saying that made me sick almost. Yeah, butter-flavored spread. Butter-flavored, and it's in a packet. You squeeze it out. There's something wrong about that. So, yeah, the got Sometimes you see these lawsuits, you think that's pretty frivolous, but it goes through and you can get that company, business, whatever, change their their protocol apparently over something like butter. You know, to a certain extent, I agree with him. This – You have complaints about a certain – dot-com shipping company that won't do your two-day service that you're allegedly paying for. So Flamazon has yeah. got to stop. <laughs> Go get them. This irresponsible – and they're just throwing that two-day shipping term around so loosely. They don't mean it. And now they're charging sales tax. So it's like, eh, who oh, cares? You mean here in Utah? Across the nation. <gasps> really? They put that in last week. I think they announced <clears throat> it. Because the problem is they're in the state of Utah, they're doing it. I think California probably. There's several states that have enacted sales tax on online purchases. And so instead of having you know, 20 different policies, they're just doing sales tax across the board. <laughs> Every state. See, that you can kind of understand. But this butter, this butter usage has got to stop with Dunkin' Donuts. Could and you it imagine sounds like they a did. Dunkin' Donuts like manager like going into a meeting with all of his employees? Okay, guys. We're going to learn the new butter protocol. Yeah. Um, don't call it butter because it's not. I'm probably going to end up doing the voiceover for those HR videos. Anyway. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, speaking of breakfast foods, mm. how would you feel if you were eating pancakes and in public and you got cited for doing something wrong while eating those pancakes? And what's wrong with eating pancakes in public? 
Nothing. Nothing. Maybe if you're using fake butter, maybe that's why he got excited. Was he not cutting the pancake and just trying to put the whole thing in his mouth? Because that could be kind of awful. Ooh, like a pancake roll up? No, not even that. Just stab it with the fork right in the middle and just just shove it right in. Just go for the whole thing? Yeah. That could be a little. Sounds like an interesting challenge. See? Well, here's what it says Authorities say they've charged a Florida, Florida man recorded on video sitting in the street eating pancakes. Okay. A Lakeland Police News release says Kieran Thomas was charged Thursday with placing an obstruction in the roadway and disrupting disrupting the free flow of traffic. There you go. That's well. I mean, if so, you're sitting in the so middle it's of not the, street, the pancakes; it's blocking traffic. Yes. Okay. So, but he wasn't arrested. Uh, but he was issued uh, a court date uh, for April 25th. Police first received a call Tuesday morning about a man sitting in the crosswalk of a busy intersection. The caller said the man had a small TV tray in front of him and was eating what appeared to be pancakes. We don't know. Yeah. Could be something else. Could be a waffle. A crepe, perhaps. A crepe, yes. Yeah. Offers, uh, or a, a blinchik. No, no, no. A blinchik is uh, something else in Russian. Anyway, uh, officers responded, but the man had already left. A video of the incident was later posted on Facebook and shared in a message to police. Several people tagged the video to Thomas, who police say admitted pulling the prank. So it sounds like maybe it was in connection with April Fool's Day, maybe? April Fool's. I mean, it was last week. Could have been. Who knows? But what's interesting in the story is his friend saw him, tagged his picture on Facebook, and then the cops just went, oh, it's him. Easy thanks, enough. Thanks, friends. Thanks a lot. That's why I think Facebook is inherently evil. Because it's not helping here. <laughs> so just, the, yeah. That guy could have totally got away with that. And you wonder if his friend, if there was some uh, malice involved there. Could be. Hmm. Maybe he didn't invite him to his birthday party or something. Did you? Did either of you see... Speaking of blocking traffic, not exactly blocking traffic, but my wife was watching a video on Facebook, I believe, of James Corden dressed as Belle from Beauty and the Beast with an entire cast of players Hmm. during the pedestrian crosswalk time going out on the crosswalk reenacting scenes and singing from Beauty and the Beast. No. Check it up. It's it's so – Clever. And then, of course, once the light turns green again, they immediately rush off the street. And what's cool about this is they actually have several of the cast members from the film Beauty and the Beast, including Luke Evans and Josh Gad and even Dan Dan Stevens, who plays the Beast. So they're in downtown (laughs) L.A., and just imagine James Corden, who's got a little bit of a beard, dressed as Belle, singing, you know, Be Our Guest. And Sounds like it, a nightmare. Oh, it was so funny, though. And just interesting to see what people do, how people react. You know, even when something funny like that is going on, you still have people honking their horns. Get out of the way! That are impatient. And uh, to be fair, though, this is downtown L.A., Stuff is filmed there all the time. They probably put up with stuff like this all the time. <laughs> People eating pancakes in the middle of the road. Yeah, yeah. But it's a regular if you, occurrence. If you wanted to see James Corden in a dress, or if you wanted to see Josh Gad singing <laughs> in the street, uh, disrupting traffic, then just look it up. I'm sure you just type in James Corden Beauty and the Beast or James Corden Bell. Really funny stuff. 
Let's do this. Uh, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to be speaking with a gentleman who is going to be talking about a matter that is not such a laughing matter. He's going to be talking about why comedians often struggle with mental health challenges. Interesting topic. When we return, this is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back to The Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt, who is in St. George. I don't know if he wanted me to tell you that he's in St. George. He's in uh, he's in uh, Las Vegas. Again? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. He went back. Anyway, that's where he is. I can give you his room number when we come back from the break. Um, but before we do that, we're going to be speaking with uh, Gordon Claridge, who... Is uh, He's an emeritus professor of abnormal psychology at Oxford University and emeritus fellow of Magdalen College. And he's here to talk to us about mental health, which obviously is no laughing matter. But uh, believe it or not, many comedians suffer from mental health. And we welcome you to the program. Gordon, thank you so much for joining us. That's a, that's a pleasure. So for just right out of the gate, I want to know who your favorite comedian is or who are some of your favorites. Well, uh, there are many British comedians. I suppose people like uh, Malcolm McIntyre is a famous comedian here, um, uh, I guess. You mean in the present or past? Oh, no, no, no. Just of all time. Oh, right. Well, I mean, Spike Milligan was very favorite of mine. He was a long time ago. He suffered from serious mental health problems, but uh, he was a funny man. Um, uh, yeah, he, he, he was probably the funniest of the people, and he also suffered the most serious mental health problems, actually. Yeah. You, you know, when I think of British comedians, I think of... Stephen Fry and oh, Eddie, yeah, Eddie Izzard and, yeah. Yeah. Eddie Izzard, actually, is is quite a favorite of mine. Um, he's a very sort of quirky kind of person, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah. So, so Dr. Claridge, I know you did this study on comedians and, and mental health. How did you become interested in this topic, or how did you stumble upon this topic and, and decide to do further research on it? Well, it really goes back to an interest in creativity generally. In other words, nothing to do with comedians. Uh, I've had an interest in the relationship between uh, mental health and uh, creativity, basically. The kind of madness creativity thing, which is an old idea, really, that people who are highly creative uh, uh, may have mental health problems or have traits which relate to that um so that's where it came from uh, and then it struck me that comedians were a very good example of creativity so, so that's, that's how that's how i came to it i came to it from a general interest in the, the relationship between madness and creativity yeah so speaking of those traits what how many of those how many of those traits are nature versus nurture what can you tell us about that well that's a, a hot topic of course because people disagree a lot about that but 
Um, from the position that I came to it, it, it was the idea that there is a rather large heritable component in the traits. That's not always agreed. There is a lot of controversy about that. But uh, So my view would be that uh, these are sort of inherent uh, temperamental traits, if you like, that people inherit. But of course, that's not the only story, because nobody would believe that uh, inheritance acts on its own. There is always a, an interaction between uh, the environment and uh, and the genes. So, I mean, the boring conclusion, I think, is, if you like, is that it's really an interaction between the two. You know, it's not one or the other, but some people take extreme views, unfortunately. Yeah. Do you think there are benefits of having psychotic traits? Obviously, there are drawbacks from that, but are, are there any benefits from having some of those psychotic traits? Oh, yes. Well, that, that really is the whole point of my research. I mean, I've always taken the view that it's a sort of spectrum. You know, all of the, all of these traits are on a dimension or dimensions, and uh, in moderate form, they do have beneficial uh, effects, really. In other words, uh, uh, you know, creativity, for example, might be one of them. It's not the only one, but uh, that's one that uh, is illustrated by this comedian work. Um, if you have them in a small degree, um, then they're beneficial, not everybody, again, agrees with this. I mean, it's a very controversial area. Sure. But, but uh, that, that's my view, anyway, that that you can find moderate amounts of psychotic traits that uh, benefit people. So, Gordon, you mentioned creativity. Why, I mean, why would some of these psychotic traits spark creativity? Well, it, it's partly to do with the cognitive style, if to use the psychological jargon, the, the style of thinking that people have that varies, and and one style is a sort of off-the-wall thinking, you know, out-of-the-box thinking. And that, um, although it may seem distant from mental illness, actually certain forms of psychotic illness are characterized by that. People think very much out of the box, and if they think too much out of the box, of course, it can lead to mental illness, you know, paranoid ideas and all sorts of psychotic things. But um, in a moderate form, I think it facilitates creativity. Um, so that's, that's one certainly element in it, is the cognitive style, the thinking the way of thinking, if you think of comedians, a lot of their, and my stand-up comedians, for example, a lot of their humor is out-of-the-box thinking, isn't it? It's sort of seeing something different in what most people uh, see as ordinary. So that that's one factor. Another factor, I think, is the the mood. You know, there's a, the, the thing about the comedians we looked at, and I'm... We just did another study, actually, which we've just finished, which comes out in the same way. I think the thing is they often have what you might call a cyclothymic temperament, that is sort of a bit bipolar, and the mood part of that is important. The high mood uh, can facilitate this uh, 
cognitive style. So the two act together, really, I think, to uh, um, facilitate each other. I mean, Robin Williams was actually a very good example of that, I think. He had quite... Uh, 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 well, perhaps more than psychothymic, perhaps even bipolar temperament. And I think if you if you think about how these comedians behave, it, it does look as though you know one is facilitating the other. That is the high mood, the excitement, the impulsivity, and so on, the risk taking that goes with it, and then this cognitive style. Does yeah, that make sense? Yeah, yeah. It's interesting, too, because it seems like, you know, obviously there are a lot of people in, or there are people in entertainment, I should say, that have used drugs or abused alcohol. And there may be people uh, in the inter- entertainment industry that don't use those drugs, but for them, performing and having the feedback from the audience is kind of their drug. And so maybe when they're not on stage doing the thing that makes them feel good to help them get that high, they don't really know how to handle life. Would you say that's true? Well, yes, that's exactly what we found in a way, because uh, the, the peculiar thing about the profile, the personality profile of the comedians we looked at, on average, I have to say this is a statistical study, so it's always, you know, what the average effect is, but it's fairly significant. And the typical profile was very unusual because they had this sort of uh, extroverted uh, high mood component, but they also had a kind of depressive, uh, uh, what we call anhedonic component and that's very odd really because you know it's not a natural kind of combination that you find normally but they they had that and and that's the kind of cyclothymic uh profile i think and um the the, the high mood bit of it the acting uh, on stage and the, the um uh, you know the, the com- comedic act actually is, I think, a kind of compensation and a, a way of dealing with perhaps an underlying uh, depression. And when they're not on stage, you're quite right. I think often they do feel quite low, actually. And, and there are biographical uh, or autobiographical account of that, of feeling, you know, things are not so good when they're not on stage, but going on stage... It's a kind of medication, really, kind of self-medication. It, it gives them a high uh, that compensates for the, uh, well, we, well, we call it anhedonia, but it's a sort of depressive mood. Did you, so in this study, when you, these comedians that you looked at, uh, did you find anything that was kind of on the other end of that spectrum where... You know, maybe the comedian prefers to be more of an an introvert off stage, and I, I think maybe some of this comes from the enormous amount of pressure to always be on. This expectation that comes from the audience member to for them to always be on, but maybe that's not who they really are. They maybe they want to take a more business approach. This is who I am at work. This is who I am at home. Have you? Did any of that come up in your study at all? Um, well, it did in the sense that we had uh, one or two uh, people who spoke of that because, in addition, I mean, it was a sort of statistical study of 
traits and so on, and not very much introspection, but um, we had individual comedians who said precisely that, yes, that, you know, uh, sometimes I'm just very introverted and... Uh, you know, when I'm in, when I'm expected to be funny, you know, I'm funny on the stage, but often I'm not like that at all. Um, what what is their real personality? Of course, is difficult to <clears throat> to say, isn't it? Really, whether it's the introversion or the extroversion. But the interesting thing is, is this combination. That that's a that's a crucial thing we found in the study, and we've just found it in another study of women, and we've just finished another study of just of women comedians, and that comes out very clearly. Um, and it comes out, yes, in, in the reports that some comedians give. Um, but, but as I say, it's difficult to know what is the real personality, because they're both, uh, they're both the real personality, aren't they? If you have a sort of um, mood change personality. That's what you are, really. Yeah. Hey, Gordon, let's do this. Let's take a break. Uh, when we come back, I want to talk to you more about maybe some of the differences between male and female comedians. And uh, also, uh, I'm interested to know which comedians you, you took a look at. So let's do that. We'll continue the discussion when we come back. We're speaking with Gordon Claridge, who is uh, an emeritus professor of abnormal psychology at Oxford University. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt. And uh, we're speaking about mental health and comedians with our guest Gordon Claridge, who's uh, who's done some research on this. And Gordon, before we went to the break, uh, you started talking about female comedians as well. And I'm curious to know, did you notice in your research, uh, what were some of the, the big differences between female comedians and male comedians in terms of mental health? Well, I mean, we've just finished a study which was just about women. The first study had both women and men. Uh, I mean, the basic pattern, actually, of this kind of cyclothymic temperament is the same, really, except it does seem, in the first study, that women seem to show that more, actually. They seem to show more um, um, what we call impulsive nonconformity, which is a kind of high mood part of the temperament. In the second study, um, it comes out even more strongly. So it's not a particular difference in that respect, except that it's just more exaggerated. But we did find, uh, and we used a different set of questionnaires in the second study, um, which uh, did show some interesting things. Uh, For example, they seemed to show high heterosexuality, which was a rather surprising, well, not surprising, but um, it seemed to me that that was reflecting the fact that they were working in a, they work in a male profession, really. I mean, uh, the, the comedy is very much a male profession, even now, I think. 
And so I think there is a sort of uh, competition, perhaps, which sure. causes them to be more interested in men, perhaps. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, one has to avoid being kind of sexist about this. Uh, and I don't think it, 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 the results show that. They simply show that um, they have to work a bit harder, really, if you'd like. And I mean, another, the other thing we found is that on this particular questionnaire was uh, a lot of exhibitionism. They, 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 they scored highly on exhibitionism. Um, that's not a, actually a comparison with males. That's simply that on the questionnaire, that was one of the high scores. Um, and uh, it's interesting that the woman that, as it were, funded the, the uh, project, a woman uh, who works for or organizes something called Funny Women, which is a kind of website in Britain, uh, one of her predictions was that what she thought that women would show was exhibitionism. They were more exhibitionist. But I don't know what what that signifies particularly, but uh, I think it may be driven all of it a little bit by this competition between um, men and women and women having to be more uh, I don't know, well, you know, just work harder at it and be more outrageous, perhaps, or I don't know whether you would agree with that. but uh, No, I, I can see that point, absolutely. You see what I'm saying? It, it's, 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 I mean, it is a male profession, basically, and it's more difficult for women even now to uh, be part of it, so they have to pass the more male, as it were, or, you know, make more risque jokes or whatever. Sure. Yeah, you know what and, I mean? yeah and you're probably aware of the uh, the CNN uh, miniseries that they have right now about comedians and the history of comedy. And I think there's an entire episode that deals with that very thing, with female comedians and the pressure behind that and trying to succeed in, in as you said, a very male-dominated um, career choice. And yeah, having to say things that maybe a woman might not otherwise say, which yes. do, which doesn't sound right saying, but you know what I mean. Uh, just trying to that whole aspect of trying to compete or keep up with with men who are saying those things too. Yes, yes, I'm sure that's true because one does get that impression with some female comedians. Anyway, they they're quite on the edge, aren't they, in that respect? So, uh, you know, you mentioned earlier in the program uh, Robin Williams, obviously somebody who is loved by so many people and, you know, not just on a – not just from people who are fans of his but people that are in the entertainment industry that are close to him and and really love him. Um, And obviously we all know people that that may be in the spotlight that that suffer with mental illness – but we might not be friends with them, but we could be friends with somebody who's not famous, who has mental illness. So just in a very general sense, what are some things that you think we can do to help a friend who is struggling with mental illness? Well, uh, I mean, I think, you know, often the choice is uh, for such people is between drugs and not drugs, isn't it? And and that's a, an awful kind of choice. And I think... Uh, Although some people with serious mental illness 
have to take drugs. Um, I mean, there are kind of so-called cognitive behavior therapy, psychological treatments and so on, which can help. But on a personal level, I think one just has to make them see if one can. And, of course, it's often difficult because they don't have an insight sometimes that um, a lot of their traits are very normal, really, very adaptive, and that it's perfectly all right to be unconventional and... uh, you know, not be uh, labelled just as a patient. So that, I mean, in a general sense, I suppose that's probably quite a good approach, isn't it, to accept them as they are, really. That's always been my view. I I, uh, worked a lot with schizophrenic patients and, um, uh, you know, just listening to them and so on and not dismissing what they say is just crazy and trying to get underneath whatever might seem crazy to understand them as people. So it seemed to me, and it's a very general kind of answer to your question, but uh, that has always been my view, that one has to accept them as people, uh, and and it's perfectly all right. I mean, as long as they're not not dangerous to themselves or other people, that's obviously a cut-off point if somebody's... uh, you know, intent upon killing somebody. Obviously, that's right, not right. a good thing. But but outside that, it seems to me quite a lot of deviance is perfectly all right. You know, why shouldn't people shout about in the street if they need to or do whatever they do? And so that that is a general approach, I think. That uh, you know, in other words, re- emphasizing the dimensional side of it and. Um, that it is on a spectrum, and that you know that, that's also true, of course, of, of Asperger's syndrome, which uh, mm-hmm. is another another area that I've looked at a little bit. Um, and uh, you know, a lot of these people are highly talented people. They may be slightly weird to other people's eyes, but uh, they often have talents, and, and that trying to utilize those in various ways is a good thing, you know. Yeah. And Gordon, you know, you mentioned uh, not only um, accepting someone for who they are, but also helping them to see, which can be difficult to do, helping them to see that some of these traits that they have are are normal. You know, they're not as abnormal as they would think, which is kind of ironic because comedians especially seem to be the voice of everybody at times, you know, when they're voicing frustrations with a certain topic that I think that's how we identify with them so well is they're saying things that we are thinking, but we would probably never say ourselves, you know? Absolutely, absolutely yes, yes. Out of the box, really out of the box stuff that, uh, or off the wall stuff that um, we may think but wouldn't verbalize, you know? Right. And they can say that in, in a comedy setting, which yeah. is uh, acceptable. And, uh, no, I think that's absolutely right. Uh, I think the whole point of the, the whole creativity, it's not just comedians, the whole creativity thing is that is about that, about doing something unconventional or different uh, that basically is not dangerous. I mean, that is a cut-off point. I mean, obviously... Uh, some highly psychotic people do dangerous things, and 
even people who are not often don't have an insight into their behavior and they often do need drugs even to get to them psychologically you know to, they're sort of really out of it uh, so sometimes drugs are necessary but I'm, there's a great deal that one could do without that I think and uh, it's not a, it's not always a popular view with psychiatry unfortunately but sure so, um, in fact, America, it's interesting that there is a big argument between American and European psychologists about that. I mm. think in the European model, uh, dimensionality is much more acceptable, whereas I've found in some American, uh, I have to say this, American thinking, it's a much more medical view. Interesting. Wow, yeah. yeah. Um, so, Gordon, just as we wrap up the interview here, well, something that we like to do on the program is just uh, we like for our guests to mention the one thing that, that we can do today or the one thing that can help listeners today. And in the in the case of mental health, I'm just curious to know how can we help remove the stigmas that surround mental health illness? What's something that we can do today to help? Well, I think embrace it as, as having as an essentially healthy component which goes wrong, but nevertheless is essentially healthy in, in the moderate degree. And just embrace that, I think. Embrace, if you like, deviance. It's not necessarily something to be stigmatized or, or disliked, but just accept people as they are. That's what I would say. Well, Gordon, thank you so much for joining us on the Matt Townsend Show. Gordon Claridge is his name. He's an emeritus professor of abnormal psychology at Oxford University and emeritus fellow of Magdalen College. And he's known for his work in developing the theoretical construct of uh, schizotypy. Schizotypy is the putative dimension normally distributed throughout the population whose defining characteristic is that of proneness to develop schizophrenia in particular and uh, psychosis in general. So, Gordon, again, we appreciate having you here on the Matt Townsend Show. And talking about mental health, it is an important topic and uh, an interesting one to connect with comedians. We'll take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to be speaking with our own McKenna Baus. She's going to be in the house talking about the earth, and she's telling us that maybe it's not going to be classified a planet? What? We'll talk about that when we come back. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome to her house. She is looking about. She is here to break down. Welcome back. It's the House of Baus, or it's time for McKenna House to enter, or McKenna Baus to enter the house. Uh, <laughs> we were just talking about that. This is her house. McKenna, welcome once again. I'm glad to be here. Great. So you have some news that would probably make our good friend... Pluto, or Matt likes to call him Mo Pluto, very happy, I'm sure, because Pluto was probably, I think it was 10 years ago, was declassified, meaning he was stripped of his planet status and is now considered a dwarf planet. What news do you have here for us this morning about the planet Earth? Yeah, so back in 2006, uh, Pluto, no longer a planet. Mm-hmm. 
still hurts to this day. <laughs> um, and one of the reasons that happened was because there's a sort of a set of classifications that bodies in space have to meet in order to be considered a planet. And there's some people out there who've been doing some research and paying attention to those classifications and have realized that according to those set of rules, Earth should not be considered a planet for the exact same reason that Pluto was kicked out. That would be the ultimate revenge. Yeah, I feel like Pluto's out there feeling really salty right now. (laughs) But then, you know, like once Earth gets stripped of its planet status, it'll have a friend. There you go. Either that a or a friend very far away. Either that or Pluto's indeed. like, hey, you kicked me out. I'm sorry. Like So these are the these are the <laughs> same rules that us humans came up with mm-hmm. to declassify Pluto. Yeah. And so according to our own rules. We aren't planet. Oh Well no. just change them. <laughs> well that's and that's it's a big part of the, the debate. So the organization that sort of created this rules is called the International Astronomical Union. Yes. And there's um you know oh, a set of rules. And so the IAU. Their their rules include um that the object in space, the celestial body, um needs to be in orbit around a sun. Um, It has to have enough mass to uh, have enough gravity to, like, make it into a a sphere. Yeah. It has to be spherical. And then it has to have sort of cleared its neighborhood uh, of other objects. It has to – and this is the one that knocked Pluto out is that if you imagine, um, you know, a planet or a dwarf planet or whatever – and it ha- it's in orbit, and you imagine sort of this belt around it, this mm-hmm. sort of buffer zone. Anything that falls in that buffer zone has to be pulled in to start orbiting the planet. So like the moon that we have, you know, starts orbiting us. And anything else in the buffer zone, the idea is, would get pulled in too. Yeah. And the- unless it's outside of that buffer zone, then it can have its own orbit. But if you have something that's holding its own orbit around the sun, not around you, but it's crossing into that buffer zone – the idea is, you know, you don't have enough of a gravitational pull. You're not. You're not good you're enough. You're not good enough, and you're not therefore a planet. And that's what the issue with <laughs> wow. Pluto was. But now we've realized that there's a thing that crosses into Earth's orbit. It's like this asteroid or whatever. Missed and it by that much. It, we can't pull it in. We're we not good enough. We're not good enough. <laughs> we're not so strong people are like, enough um, gravitationally. You know, by by your rules, your very arbitrary rules, Earth doesn't count anymore. And so there's a lot of you know people who are saying maybe we should reconsider. But if we we don't, if we don't change the rules, then what does this mean for planet Earth? Do we lose all information we we now know is the whole whole our whole lives are a lie? Do we lose it like everything is a lie? Planet Earth? Nope. We have. To like you know rebrand that dwarf planet Earth. That Maybe we lose our tax exempt status. I don't although know. Although that's Maybe. not a real thing. <laughs> hmm. Yeah. Um, and so there's been a couple different people coming out saying, well, let's try and change how we classify planets to something that makes a lot more sense and is a little less arbitrary. But that process, we're sort of realizing, is sort of difficult because science says you can't define something by what it isn't. Mm-hmm. You have to vi- define something by what it is. Except we have a very limited sample size. We only know enough about you know the planets right here in our solar system and we're still finding stuff out there that it's sort of hard to say like, oh, these are the rules. Sure. Well, are they really? We don't know. Um, 
And so some people are saying, well, it should be a sphere in space smaller than the sun, but that makes it so there's like 100 planets in our solar system. <laughs> other people, you know, are trying to say some other things, but really it's just a mess, and I think we should just be nice to Pluto and let it back. Okay, so, but there's there's the next question. Does this mean Pluto gets to come back? And if we accept Pluto back into the planetary club, do we have to take a bunch of other uh, dwarf planets into the club as well? You know, that's that's part of the, the concern, and mm. it's definitely up for debate. Sounds like we need to build a wall. We need to, we need to, ins- we need to strengthen our gravitational pull. That's what I think. Yeah. We well, just need to do some bench presses in the gravity. <laughs> McKenna Baus, thank you so much for your insight. What a fascinating topic. And now I just have more questions than I feel like we have answers. But one thing is for certain, I just want to share the words of Stuart Smalley, Planet Earth, and tell you that you are good enough, smart enough, and doggone it, people, people like, like you. you. Exactly. <laughs> so just everybody this morning on your way to work, Maybe not while you're driving. Just look in the mirror and tell yourself that. And, and you'll, the earth. And you'll instantly feel better. Anyway, McKenna, thank you very much. We'll take a quick break. When we come back, we'll continue the fun and continue the discussion. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Today, Dr. Mattless, but that's okay. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good Tuesday morning. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We are once again Dr. Mattless, but that's okay. He's still in beautiful St. George, Utah. And uh, again, we we told him that if he didn't get back here soon, he uh, we would release more and more information each and every day about his whereabouts, so that uh, his listeners can follow up on him just to make sure he's okay. We just want to make sure he's okay. Anyway, he's missed. We're still gonna have a good time because today is Walk Around Things Day. I thought this was interesting. There are so many options from the lighthearted method of simply walking around things where you may circle a fire hydrant a couple of times for fun on the way to work. Have you ever done that for fun? No, I'm usually going somewhere. Okay. I just aimlessly wander. Because usually when I see a fire hydrant, I I think, wouldn't that be fun if I just circled that a couple of times? Uh, So to the more exercise-conscious method of walking around the park, you usually walk through as a shortcut. This day reminds us that sometimes you have to pick your battles, and sometimes the best way to deal with a situation is by simply not dealing with it at all. So is it kind of like beating around the bush? Sure. Okay. So if you see a fire hydrant today, just uh, walk around it a few times, I guess. Today is also vitamin C day, so get lots of vitamin C just today. You don't have to worry about the other days, but today it's very important. Just avoid scurvy. That's all they want. Yeah. Watch out for that scurvy. Doesn't that only happen on pirate ships? Yeah. Okay. And it's pretty much in all our food anyways, so we're good. Yeah. All right. So don't worry about it. Crisis averted. Not a thing. (laughs) We'll also be talking about the uh, 
the basketball game, Gonzaga versus North Carolina. And apparently, I didn't watch it, but apparently it was not a good game. It was a game. I don't know if you – I mean (laughs) – they scored that, points. People won. I think that whatever. was the headline when I when I turned on uh, ESPN I, I just, and said it was a game. It, it was a game. I have a hard time watching putting a basketball game in a uh, NFL football stadium. Hmm. Uh, it's just the it's just weird. Like all the players sit below the court because they have to elevate it on the football field. Plus, they want to like elevate it so it's easier to see. I guess you get just for the TV audience and for the hmm. stadium audience. There's all these photos of here's the worst seat. And someone stands in the seat and takes a picture of what it would look like to watch the game from the seat. You can't see anything. <laughs> You're paying $350 for that ticket. Wow. You're against the back wall of the upper bowl, upper deck of where, where did they play? You remember? Oh, it was in Arizona. So Arizona. In, where the Arizona Cardinals play. And they're in the upper deck. And you can't see the game, but you just paid $300 for a ticket. You hmm. know, it's just, it doesn't make any sense. It's like you have to be in the moment. You have to be there. Like, really, you can't see what's happening. So are you just gauging what's happening based on the audience response? I guess. Which sounds and, like people were really upset with all the fouls and everything. Right. And for the players, you're in this situation where in all the basketball stadiums, like you have your the basketball hoop and then the crowd's right there, and it usually, usually because it's a the, the stadiums are a bowl it like slopes up. But in the football stadium, it's flat because you're on the middle of a 100 yard field. Right. And so the, there's there's fans there, but it's just flat. So the the sight lines are different. What it looks like when you shoot the basketball, it's different. There's nothing behind the glass. It's just kind of you because you, all the glass is transparent. Obviously, yeah. you see through the hoop and it just goes on forever because there's nothing there. Huh. So some of the players comment about how it's hard to to get their you know range of shooting again back, and they can just the way things look throws everybody off. And the whole reason it's in a football stadium is greed, hmm. right? They're selling tickets. It's about money. There's no reason for the game to be in there except you want to put a hundred thousand people or eighty to sixty, whatever it is, a bigger amount that you could get in a basketball stadium. So, so it's just this whole weird environment for this game. And the players don't usually play that well. So is is Gonzaga saying that it's the no, stadium's a, fault? This is a comment that's been going on for like 20 years, okay. ever since they moved the championship round into football stadiums so they could sell more tickets. Because Just it's stay. about the student athletes. Hmm. You know what they ought to do? They'll all drop out of school the second they go pro, so it's fine. They ought to just play in a basketball stadium yeah. and then play a second game for all the people that couldn't get into the first one. I guess, but I mean, all the people who can't. You know, and then that, if they if there's a if they tie, then they have to do a tiebreaker that, for a third game. That's more tickets. That overflow audience can't really see the game anyways, hmm. right? Because you, when you if you put the basketball stadium audience in, they can see. Once you get to the football, the the rest of the audience, which is the football stadium audience, they can't really see what's happening anyways. They might as well just watch at home. Moral of the story: We Stay always home, talk watch about the game. this. We talk about this all the time. Yeah. It's the best seat in the house. Yeah. You get to see all the replays. Everything's crystal clear. You can go to the bathroom when you want. Nobody spills beer on you. And it's fun until the last about five minutes when they just start fouling everyone and the clock just ticks every couple seconds and it (laughs) takes about an hour to get through five minutes. Just like football. Yeah. (gasps) 
Maybe there's something there. <laughs> Maybe depends. not. I wouldn't look too hard. Anyway, uh, so we'll be talking about that game throughout the show, and especially when we speak with Spencer and Jerem at BYU Sports Nation at the end of the show here. But uh, first, let's head on over to Terry South and see what's going on around the rest of the country. Terry, what's up? The fight to replace Obamacare is not over. Vice President Mike Pence and two senior White House officials offered up a carrot in a closed-door meeting Monday night with their biggest GOP foe on the issue, the House Freedom Caucus. They reportedly offered the ability for states to apply for waivers for two Obamacare coverage requirements, essential health benefits, which mandates coverage in 10 categories like prescription drugs and maternity care, and community rating, which forces plans to charge all members of an age group the same price. Doing away with those essential means, those essentials means eliminating the pre-existing condition safeguards that mm. Obamacare tenant that Trump has now promised to maintain. Uh, the Freedom Caucus expects to get the offer in writing today. The caucus head, uh, Representative Mark Meadows, responded favorably to it in comments to the New York Times. Uh, the Times goes on and explains technically the deal would still prevent insurers from denying coverage to people with a history of illness, but without the community rating, health plans would, would be free to charge those patients as much as they wanted. So they give mm. the example, if you are a cancer patient, there's a health plan for you. It's just going to charge you through the roof for the treatment. Sure. So it doesn't really help the person with cancer that the Obamacare yeah. kind of set some limits on how much you could charge for, say, chemotherapy. Okay. So do you think this is going to sway anybody or not? I don't know. Really? I mean, that's another <laughs> thing that Trump promised, and now they seem to be using it as a as a bargaining chip and doesn't seem to uh, – people. I don't know if people pay attention close enough to notice that these things are happening. Yeah. But this could – I mean, would the Freedom Caucus go with it? I don't know. Sometimes they, they – as one person said, if the Ten Commandments – we're up for uh, vote. The Freedom Caucus would vote it down. So we'll see, we'll see where they go. So just don't get sick, I guess. Yeah. President Trump's Supreme Court nominee Neil Gorsuch cleared a key Senate hurdle on Monday when the Senate Judiciary Committee voted to send the nomination to the full Senate for a vote, the vote being along party lines, 11 Republicans, 9 Democrats. In opposition, uh, Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said Sunday that Gorsuch will be confirmed by the Senate one way or another. So uh, either he gets the vote or they do the uh, – nuclear option and uh, break the filibuster and push them through by changing the rules. We'll see what happens. President Trump signed a legislation Monday that repealed a series of Obama-era rules that protected Internet users' privacy. The rules, which have yet to take effect, would have required Internet users' consent before Internet service providers collect information on the user's location, browsing history, information on their finances, health care, or their children. So we could potentially see changes so that we're not – I'm not reminded of, oh, yeah, I looked that up on Amazon and now I'm reminded for – or reminded of it for the rest of my life. Possibly because okay. they'll sell things to you. Now, Facebook and like uh, Google do this, but you click a little link that says you agree and this would be your internet provider not having to send you some sort of opt-in measure. You would just hmm. be in the program. So congratulations if you – they, they say they're not going to do that, but when people get that extra information, they can sell against it, and that's what Google does to sell, make all the money they do. The internet companies want to do that also. So they mm. want to take your private information, as you said, put products up against it, and then put that in front of you. So there will be more ads, more pop-ups, more videos that you can't stop. Oh. It's going to be great. It's going to make the internet 
Wonderful. Um, in other news, <laughs> President Trump has boasted about the lengths he has gone in order to distance himself from his business empire. Remember, he had that press conference. There was all these Manila envelopes piled up, and they go, "This right. is all the this is the agreement on how I'm going to separate myself from my companies." Well, there's a little clause, updated language, allowing Trump to draw money from his more than 400 businesses at any time without disclosing it. The clause was added via a document signed February 10th, which states that the trust shall distribute net income or principal to Donald J. Trump at his request, including everything from profits to an actual business itself. Richard Painter of the White House Ethics Council under George W. Bush condemned the latest move as illustrating that Trump controls the businesses and called it a conflict of interest. So we'll... if I remember correctly, the reporters weren't allowed to uh, review any of those documents. No, they went up to look in the doc- documents and some people got in front. No, 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 you can't touch these. They were I, simply there for, you know, the photo op. Yeah, and then on Saturday Night Live, they were actually just – it was just one big chunk, fake yeah. chunk of documents. It was a big plastic yeah. prop. And as we talked about, North Carolina wins its sixth national title. Uh, it's the uh, third under the head coach Roy Williams – who was there on the sidelines flaunting his, I think, his second national championship ring, which is huge and could hurt somebody if he got, you know, wild with his hand gestures. Sure, yeah. Just a massive chunk of metal. So, oh, man, people were really pulling for Gonzaga to win. Sure. I know you Everybody, were. Well, pulling in the sense of <laughs> I have a, a binary choice and I chose one versus the other. Yeah, so, yeah, Gonzaga. So they were one and, and North Carolina was zero? I, you know, <laughs> They have, what, five? Give somebody else a title? Yeah. <sighs> See, that's what the great thing about the, the last World Series was, that it was, gonna, it was great no matter what happened. The Cubs no. hadn't won for over 100 years, and the Indians hadn't won for close to 100, I think. Nobody would care if Cleveland won. Really? It was the Cubs. That was the whole story. <sighs> if the Cubs lost, the whole story would be how the Cubs failed. See, no one would go, oh, good job, Cleveland. The yeah, Cubs, the Cubs Cleveland. knocked my Dodgers out of the playoffs, and I was still rooting for the Cubs. Mm. So I think you're right. I think People just like the Cubs. They want the Cubs to win. I wanted them because I didn't want to hear about that goat anymore. Oh. Just ended. It was like every year, oh, the goat got him. Like, come on. Some guy dragged a goat in 1907. Come on. <laughs> it's a dumb so story. getting back to Gorsuch, is yep. that, that's going down on Friday? That's what they're saying. They'll have the vote Friday. Okay. And I don't know what the process will be. It, it'll probably be extremely boring. It'll be covered extensively by C-SPAN. See, now, how long does it take <laughs> for them to invoke that nuclear option? I don't know. We don't know the logistics of that. No. I, and then it's this parliamentary stuff, and then the speaker recognizes the, Oh, come on. Oh. <laughs> it's boring, but it's how, you know, how this process works. But I don't know. You hear the, the – it goes back to – what was it? Reagan or I can't remember it was uh, Robert Bork was a back in the 80s was a guy that was uh, he's a a, just a a candidate for the Supreme Court and he came in and he was controversial and so there was a fight back and forth and those the that fight still resonates with many of the people mainly because they're super old and they're still in office and they hold that grudge and there's been like five or six different instances over the last 30 years where the Democrats were like, you did this, and the Republicans were like, you did this, and it's all coming to a head now where they're not even going to try to talk. Mm. They're going to, you going to do this? No, fine. We're just going to blow this all up and do our own thing and, you know, as they change the rules 
and make it so that you just get a simple majority to push them through. Is there going to be any substance to this filibuster, or is it literally just going to be somebody up there reading the dictionary? Well, no. There, I don't think there's going to be that form of a filibuster. Okay. It's simply the fact that the Democrats aren't going to vote for this guy. That will be hmm. their filibuster, and they'll break it by just changing the rules. We're not going to have, like, Ted Cruz reading Green Eggs and Ham or something like he did when he shut down the government. See, now that I would tune in to watch. That's okay for That'd about five most, minutes. Then the you're like land reading of Dr. Seuss. Yeah, but then you start thinking, like, people are out of work. You know, government people were, you know, government uh, employees were sent home for no reason. You know, and then you're like, well, people are like, well, it's great. The IRS isn't working. Well, so is the like the VA hospitals. They're they're also understaffed now because we shut the government down. Sure. And you speaking know? of a government shutdown, it seems like if somebody's up there reading green eggs and ham, that government official has now become uh, non uh, essential. essential. Yeah. yeah. In effect, yes. <laughs> so, but there's wow. several fights coming up, and it's it's odd that. They're still fighting. It's like the Republicans control the House, the Senate, and the White House. And it just seems like it's the same government we've had for the last, what, 8 to 12 years. Was it's it just uh, grinding to a halt for no reason. Was it Orrin Hatch that a while back uh, came up with this option of the nuclear option? That No, no, no. Oh, this was, goes way back. Yeah, it goes beyond – well, not, not, not beyond him, but he didn't come up with this idea. Some okay. other people did. Mm. And they did it before with lower courts. Uh, some federal courts and some circuit courts that weren't being uh, pushed through with uh, under, under when President Obama was there, and the Republicans were blocking there, and uh, so the Democrats went ahead, blew out the rules, and let those lower court judges go through on a simple majority. Now they're just taking those rules and using them for a Supreme Court, wow. which they never thought they would do because the Supreme Court is so important. But we're just nobody cares anymore. We're just fighting for spite now. Seems kind of like a slippery slope, yeah. Like they'll just keep lowering the number of votes needed. To, oh, fine, you're not going to go our way. We'll just do it this way. Yeah, we'll just jam mm. it through. But several of the uh, 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 what was it? The uh, cabinet appointees went through the same way because Democrats didn't even show up to the meeting. Wow. So the Republicans just went fine. Change the rules. You're in. Goodbye. And I'm like, <laughs> great. <laughs> Called Man, government. Sounds like elementary school tactics. A lot of it is. It seems very juvenile. Wow. It's like, you did this, fine, we're going to retaliate. And then, then you just keep having to escalate it because how do you retaliate? You can't do the same. You have to do something a little bit worse, a little bit more, a little bit more cutting. Yeah. And you just keep digging in. And so it's very juvenile. You, you don't remember doing that when you were a kid, just when things weren't going your way? Well, oh, yeah. oh no, no. This is actually and just making up the rules as you go along. Right. Oh, my goodness. Well, so fun times. Hopefully, and that's not even the half of what I had to figure out how to present today. There was like five different things that happened yesterday: newspaper reports about people in the administration talking with people they shouldn't be talking to, like FBI involved, people going to islands in the Indian Ocean to meet with people they may or may not have should have been, you know, representing the administration, talking to them, and it's makes just, you, it makes, goes on and on. Yeah. Makes you want to take another look at who's essential and who's non-essential in government. Interesting. Well, hopefully they can figure it out. And oh, See, we just need to talk to each other. We need to talk to each other, and we need to make compromises, and we need to not make decisions based solely on 
what our voters want and what the lobbyists want. Anyway, I need to get off my soapbox because we have a very important topic when we return. We're going to be speaking with Kevin Johnson, who's going to be talking to us a little bit more about Trump's immigration policies and shedding some more light on those and maybe how they differ and uh, how they might be the same as Obama's immigration policies. That's up next when we return. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back to The Matt Townsend Show. This is uh, Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt while he's away in St. George. Hopefully he wanted me to tell you that. Anyway, uh, President Trump's immigration policies have been a huge part of his presidential administration. Although his efforts have focused on the Middle East, his current policies concerning Latin America are very similar to the Obama administration. His main focus has been deporting undocumented immigrants with criminal histories. And here to speak with us today about this is Dean Kevin Johnson, a professor of public interest law and of Chicana studies at UC Davis. Uh, Dean, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Oh, thanks for having me. Do you prefer Dean or Kevin? Kevin's fine. Oh, okay. All right. So um, thank you once again for, for being on the show. Um, I'm just curious to know... Could you could you start out by talking to us about what were uh, President Obama's immigration policies? And then from there, we can talk about how maybe they're similar to Trump's policies and how they differ. Sure. Uh, well, President Obama, in his first four years in office, focused primarily on increasing the number of uh, immigrants removed from the country because of uh, criminal problems. Uh, and he set a, a number of removal records for the United States of about 400,000 a year uh, in his first four years in office. In fact, some, some immigrant advocacy groups refer, refer to President Obama as the deporter-in-chief. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and President Obama did a, a number of things uh, trying to refine uh, and, um, imp- in, in his view, improve uh, sort of the criminal justice pipeline into the immigration removal system. So he began working very closely with state and local governments to try to get them to turn over persons, immigrants arrested for crimes uh, to, the, to the federal government. And he had a program called Secure Communities that was very effective at that. Uh, and uh, he was able to greatly increase removal numbers. The thing that some people focus more on than the removals is on his deferred action program for um, childhood arrivals. Uh, undocumented immigrants who were brought here as children by their parents. Uh, and, and there was some temporary limited relief provided to that group of people. Um, but but it, it really is sort of overshadowed by the you know, incredible increase in removal efforts over, over the, the first four years. And the idea, I think, of President Obama was that, well, we'll show we're committed to enforcement, and then we'll try to convince Congress to pass comprehensive immigration reform. What happened was there were a lot of deportations, a lot of families that were affected, a lot of of concerns with the deportation policies. But in the end, um, President Obama wasn't able to convince Congress to pass uh, comprehensive immigration reform. So um, then we we come to to President Trump, and he is building on um, President Obama's criminal removal system and is trying to expand it somewhat and trying to increase the numbers. 
uh, of people deported from the country. And it's important to note that, uh, that the focus is not just on undocumented immigrants, but on lawful permanent residents, that, that is, green card holders who've been, been arrested for particular crimes. And, and President Trump, in his January 25th executive order, seeks to expand the sort of removal process to include people who, immigrants who've been arrested of crimes uh, and has taken a, the Obama administration's policy to new and um, more aggressive levels. So thank you for that, for that background, too. Um, what are your thoughts and opinions on, on what President Trump is doing with his initiatives? Well, I think that um, it's ironic to me that he was very critical of President Obama for in, engaging in executive actions when so far uh, he's um, issued four immigration executive orders that take uh, take very uh, aggressive steps on immigration, um, it would seem to me that the, the most logical approach uh, would be to go to Congress and try to get some kind of comprehensive immigration reform through Congress. And I understand this may not be the best time um, for rational heads to prevail, but it seems to me that we really have an immigration system that needs serious reforms. Most people would agree with that. We have an Immigration and Nationality Act, which was passed in 1952, is kind of a, a you know, um, uh, an, uh, a symptom, if you will, of the Cold War, and really is designed to keep out communists from the United States, and is not really attuned to dealing with the global labor migration and modern. Uh, needs for immigrant labor in the United States. So, so I think what we really need to do, uh, and I don't think it's a Democratic-Republican issue, I think it's really a um, an issue of trying to figure out a, a solution to our legal immigration as well as our undocumented immigration issues. So, so I think we need some, some possible reform of the legal immigration laws. I think we need some kind of resolution of um, whether you call it a path to legalization for undocumented immigrants or, or some kind of um, treatment, you know, making it clear what, what their status is, if any, under the law. Uh, and I also think that there's probably a clamoring for some more, uh, probably more modest enforcement measures than taken by President Trump. But there probably is some support for, for more enforcement. So I, so I do think it's legal immigration, undocumented immigration, uh, and enforcement that really have to be focused on in some kind of um, comprehensive congressional solution. Interesting. Uh, Kevin, I, I've got this article in front of me that, that you wrote, and uh, you mentioned that Trump is likely to encounter some, the, the same resistance that Obama did on, on his immigration enforcement. And I'm just curious to know why, why you think that is. Well, I, I think that um, some of the steps he's, take, he's taken in his executive orders uh, arguably violate some very basic constitutional rights that all people in the country have. He's, he's proposed expanding what's called expedited removal, uh, which would mean that you could have summary deportations of people nowhere near the border uh, and who have lived here for, for as long as two years. And that big expansion is is something that many people would find antithetical to basic due process rights because it's a kind of a big deal to remove somebody from the country and from their family and friends and others. And, and if we're going to do it, it seems we should do it in a constitutional way. Um, so, so I think that um, you know, we're going to expect 
some resistance from groups who um, want to ensure that the rights of people within our jurisdiction are protected. Uh, and there are other steps that, that, that President Trump is suggesting, including increased detention of immigrants as a method of immigration enforcement. He's talked about building more detention facilities near the border. Uh, he's talked about not allowing anybody to post a bond and be released from custody. And, and again, that kind of approach um, to, you know, raises some very serious constitutional questions about how we treat immigrants, what rights, if, if any, they have. Uh, and, and some would also say, is it the right way to be spending uh, our very scarce uh, federal budgetary dollars? So, so I think that, you know, there's, this is a, it's a very difficult issue to try to get our minds around. In almost any position you take, you're going to get some resistance. Uh, and it's, it's, it's like walking through a minefield of sorts, trying to come up with something that can be a compromise and in, in in appeal to a variety of constituencies. That's an interesting image, too, yeah. Um, so do you think that our justice system is racially biased? And, and how did, if so, how does that affect the deportation of immigrants? That's a good question, and it's been an issue of a very serious contention in the United States for um, most definitely the last 10 years, if not, you know, a lot longer time than that. Uh, and I, I do think that if we, we look at the, the basic raw data, um, you know, uh, we, we see that, you know, African Americans and Latinos are much more likely to, to um, be um, punished in our justice system. And, you know, we, we often hear that there are more African Americans in prison than there are in, in colleges and universities. Not sure if that's quite accurate, but it does give you an idea that you know we we have a justice system that that certainly is 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 a place where African Americans and Latinos are overrepresented, and we also have a, a situation where we 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 repeatedly hear of high profile incidents of um, um, killings of young African American men by police, uh, and you know Ferguson, Missouri is is a well known example, and there there are other cities as well. So there, there's. There, there certainly is a concern that there's there's some racial bias. It's hard to definitively say there is or there isn't racial bias in our criminal justice system, but there have been for many years concerned with um, you know, the the incidents of racial profiling by police uh, and disparate enforcement of, of the criminal justice laws on on minority communities, and oftentimes poor and minority communities uh, to, together. So, so I, I think if you, you base a immigration removal system uh, on um, people who come into contact with the criminal justice system, including people who've been arrested and not nearly convicted, you can expect an immigration removal system that, that deports um, um, racial minorities um, more than, 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 than any others. And if you look at our current removal system, uh, under President Obama, about 95% of the people removed from the United States every year uh, were from Mexico or Central America. Uh, roughly about about less about half of all immigrants come from Mexico or Latin America. So we have 95% to 50%. Um, it's hard to say for sure what's going on, but my best guess is that you know sort of the disparities in the criminal justice system affect the uh, removal numbers that we see and the disparate impact on, on Latinos. 
Interesting. So do you do you feel like then that more focus is being placed on on ethnic identity and religious affiliation when it comes to immigration or do you think there's more of a focus on the actual citizenship? I I, I think it's hard when you look at somebody you can't necessarily say whether they're a citizen or an undocumented immigrant or a lawful permanent resident. But you, unfortunately there are, there are some fairly widely held stereotypes about who's likely to be an immigrant, who's likely to be uh, a citizen, who's likely to be a terrorist. Uh, and, and I think that, um, you know, we, we see problems um, when we, certainly when we allow local law enforcement to be policing our immigration laws. In, in Arizona, in Maricopa County, there's a sheriff, now he's been voted out, out of office, Joe Arpaio, uh, who for many years had taken a, an aggressive immigration enforcement stance, um, and he, in fact, had a, uh, an agreement with the Department of Homeland Security to help um, enforce the U.S. immigration laws. Well, as it turned out, a, a federal court later found that you know, his office, the Maricopa County Sheriff's Office, engaged in a pattern and a practice of, um, of, of, of racial profiling and in violating the constitutional rights of, of not just immigrants, but also of U.S. citizens who were Latinos. So it, it's it's a, it's a serious concern that we can't take lightly, and I think that um, you know it, it really is um, difficult to enforce the immigration laws. But it's 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 also pretty easy to over enforce those laws if we rely uh, rely on stereotypes. As we all know, there there are many um, Mexican Americans who have been citizens for many generations, and we can't just guess from physical appearance or otherwise what their immigration status is. Unfortunately, many people just presume that um, many Latinos and, and many Asians uh, are immigrants when that may not, be, in fact, be the case. Mm. Interesting stuff. Kevin, let's do this. Let's take a break. Uh, when we come back, I want to continue the discussion with you uh, and uh, ask you a little bit more about sanctuary cities, what those are, and... and uh, uh, we'll we'll continue that discussion when we come back. This is the Matt Townsend Show, and we are speaking with Kevin Johnson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. We're speaking with Kevin Johnson, who is a professor of public interest law and of Chicana studies at UC Davis. And uh, before the break, we were talking about Obama uh, versus Trump's immigration policies and the similarities and differences between those policies. And uh, Kevin, welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. Hi, thanks. So I'm just curious, uh, what got you interested in? in immigration, the subject of immigration, to begin with? Well, um, I grew up in Los Angeles, um, and um, over, over the course of my, my lifetime, I, I worked with undocumented immigrants, I worked with legal immigrants, I grew up in a um, sort of a very mixed Anglo-Mexican-American community in, in sort of the San Gabriel Valley, sort of east of Los, at Los Angeles. And uh, I, I, so I had that experience. Um, but also in the 1980s, they began working with um, asylum seekers from Central America 
Uh, I'm, an, I'm an attorney, and I began handling some pro bono cases on their behalf, uh, seeking asylum for people who were fleeing civil wars in Central America. And they became very interested in how the law operated uh, and how there was this humanitarian form of relief available to people fleeing violence and persecution. Some, there were some very compelling stories that I heard from clients, uh, and it, it sort of made me very interested in, in our, how our immigration laws worked uh, and sometimes didn't work. Uh, and it um, made me think a lot about uh, what we should have in our immigration laws. And that's how I became very interested. And over the course of my career in, in academia, I began looking more closely at the immigration laws, their history, uh, and how we might improve them. So you mentioned that uh, your study interests include Central America. We've been talking about President Trump's immigration policies. What can you tell us about what's going on with uh, Trump's plans for a wall? Well, I mean, uh, one of the executive orders they issued in January uh, has um, um, you know, made it the wall a priority, uh, and, it, it, and there's funding that's being allocated, at least in the current budget proposed uh, and being considered by the House of Representatives. Uh, and there's a contract that's out to bid on, on, on the wall, on the construction of the wall. Now, now the truth is, is that Parts of the border have been uh, walled off for, for a good period of time. If you go south of San Diego along the border, there's, there's a fairly formidable uh, barrier um, that goes out into the ocean and goes inland. But there are various places over um, you know, the long border between the United States and Mexico that aren't walled at this point. And it, it appears that you know, there's going to be an effort made to um, uh, fill in those gaps. Um, now, there's a whole other separate set of questions about whether building a wall will effectively deter um, undocumented immigration or whether there'll just be ways that people use who are desperate to, to go over the wall. Uh, it is clear that at least the barriers that have been built over the last 20 years have redirected migration away from larger urban areas into more remote locations where people are more likely to um, die, um, you know, suffer the elements. And one of the things, one of the very sad things that people often don't realize is that we have um, regular deaths of people trying to cross the border through mountains and deserts, um, risking it all to try to make it to the United States. Uh, and this has been going on for quite some time. Uh, and tells you a little bit about how uh, how desperate some people are to make the United States. I'm not saying they're not violating the law, but by creating barriers and increasing enforcement, we also have increased the death toll uh, along the U.S.-Mexico border. And I think um, that's likely to uh, continue uh, as this wall gets constructed and, and goes up uh, and continues to redirect migration. Wow. Now, um, just getting, uh, just looking at the financial aspect of this, uh, do you do you feel like Trump is still expecting Mexico to pay, or do you think he's going to try to get that money out of them uh, another way, as maybe in, as far as withholding aid to them? Well, it's hard to tell. I mean, in, in part, in, I'm, I'm just I don't want to be harsh. Um, but I'm just not sure if some of the things he says are just designed to 
um, you know, to be kind of like campaign statements, or that he really thinks there's a plan for getting Mexico to pay for the wall. Um, so, so I, I do know that that Congress hasn't allocated as much money to the border uh, wall as, as he would like. Uh, and if he, he if he does want to continue construction, he's going to have to figure out how to how to fund this. But the Mexican government has been pretty emphatic that they're not going to um, uh, pay for the wall, uh, and so I, I'm just not sure how this is going to end up. Um, it, it, and I just also am not sure just how serious, uh, even though he he says it pretty regularly, how serious President Trump is that um, you know Mexico is going to pay for it. Um, so so it's hard for me to decipher, frankly. Right. So talk to us now about sanctuary cities, what they are, and if uh, federal policies affect them. Yeah, that, that's a great question. Um, and um, I think it's an important one that, that we, we all try to get a better understanding of. Originally, sanctuary cities were cities that declared themselves to be sanctuaries for Central Americans uh, in the 1980s, the original sanctuary cities were, were cities like, like San Francisco that it was encouraging Central Americans to settle there because they were fleeing civil wars, and the idea was that we wanted to provide refuge and safety and support for these uh, people who have fled violence. Uh, over time, this idea of sanctuary cities has taken on um, sim- symbolic and, and other meanings, now, one of the things that, that is very important to, to keep in mind is that under federal law, as well as uh, the various executive orders that President Trump has issued, there's no firmly defined thing um, known as a sanctuary city. There's no real definition of what one is. Um, now, some cities, uh, San Francisco is one of them, have declared that they're a sanctuary city. Um, and they've said, you know, we're going to limit uh, the cooperation of our local police with, with uh, the federal immigration authorities. Other cities have adopted similar policies but don't go so far to call themselves sanctuary cities. Um, and some cities fully cooperate with the immigration, federal immigration authorities. Uh, so there's a real range in, in, of city uh, uh, cooperation with federal immigration enforcement. Now, one of the concerns that I have uh, with President Trump's proposal to defund sanctuary cities uh, is that there's no definition, so it's, it's unclear what cities he's going to target for defunding. Um, so, and, and it's you know, it would seem to me uh, that if you want to, to reduce funding to cities for violating federal law or federal policy, you'd need some kind of congressional authorization for that. And there's some examples of, of that. You know, there's um, you know, the federal highway funding is predicated um, on the states having a speed limit of, of, at a, of a certain rate. Um, and um, that's viewed as, you know, uh, something Congress decided to earmark federal funding for those states. Uh, here, Congress hasn't really done anything. Um, but there's a lot of sort of saber-rattling by President Trump and Attorney General Sessions about how cities and states are going to be defunded. Uh, and that's having some effect on some cities. Uh, I, I, I do think that we're going to continue seeing some of this tension between the federal government and the state government, because there's some states, 
California included, that are very worried about um, uh, cooperating with federal immigration enforcement uh, and is, are going to do just what's required by federal law. There's other states that um, uh, and localities have similar views. And one of the big issues for local police is that um, they, they need the cooperation of immigrants in the community uh, if they want to fight crime, if you want to get witnesses to come forward, you want to get crime victims to come forward, uh, and, and, you, and you want to um, um, get criminal suspects to surrender voluntarily. Uh, if, if you um, are viewed as part of the federal immigration enforcement machinery, it's going to really be much harder to get that cooperation. So some cities like Los Angeles, you know, the Los Angeles Police Department, that's very conservative in a lot of ways, um, has a policy that they don't the police officers don't inquire into the immigration status of uh, crime victims or crime suspects or crime you know, witnesses. Really? And they, yeah, and they, and they have that policy because uh, they they want to make sure that uh, the immigrant community, which comprises over half of Los Angeles County, um, cooperates with the police. Um, so that it's, in, in a, that it's not really a sanctuary issue. It's an effective law enforcement issue. Um, so, so I think some local police chiefs, some people might be surprised, oppose uh, much cooperation with federal immigration enforcement, not because they want to be soft on crime or soft on immigrants, but because they want to be pro-law enforcement, and they want to make sure that immigrants go to the police, report crimes, help fight crime. Yeah. Well, Kevin, as we wrap up the interview here, uh, I would just I'm curious to know if if you could have a conversation with President Trump or somebody in his cabinet, what mm-hmm. advice would you give uh, to him or to somebody in his cabinet if they were to ask you about uh, immigration? What would you well, tell think, them? What's the one thing that could make a difference today? We need a civil dialogue to discuss these very difficult issues and try to come up with reasonable solutions to them. And blaming uh, immigrants for crime or blaming immigrants for terrorism um, is not going to help us move the ball forward. I I really think what we need now is some kind of effort to talk reasonably and thoughtfully uh, and and to realize that these are complex questions that aren't subject to easy answers. And anybody who thinks they have an easy answer to these questions, uh, I I think they're just wrong because they're hard and um, they require... A deliberate discussion, fair discussion, and also realizing that there are human consequences of our decisions. And, and to me, rather than any particular policy points, I think it's the it's the the tone and tenor of the dialogue and discussion that's probably the most important. Well, Kevin, thank you so much for being on the Matt Townsend Show. We we appreciate your insights on this topic of immigration and uh, what Trump is doing or may not be doing at this time. And Oh, if only we could get on the phone with him and and share some of those insights with him. Dean uh, is a professor, or Kevin is a, a professor of public interest law and of Chicana studies at UC Davis. He has also held leadership positions in the Association of American Law Schools and is the recipient of an array of honors and awards. He is quoted regularly by the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, and other national inter- international news outlets. He, uh, if you if you want to look him up, he blogs at Immigration Prof and is a regular contributor on Immigration on SCOTUS blog. So look him up, and we appreciate Kevin Johnson here on the Matt Townsend Show. We're going to take a quick break. 
When we come back, we'll be sharing some more interesting stories with you. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back to The Matt Townsend Show. We just finished speaking with uh, Kevin Johnson, who was talking to us about immigration. And now we have another interesting subject, because as you know, April 15th is rapidly approaching. But you may think that April 15th is tax day, but Terry says that is may is not the case, right? Not this year. Okay. Normally it is. <laughs> as this says, two things can be 100% you can be 100% sure of, and that's death and taxes. Right. Because you're never going to get rid of taxes. And you're always going to die. Yes. Uh, when you take your last <laughs> gas forever up in the air. So this is really negative. Um, so April 15th normally is tax day. Yeah. But this year, April 15th is a Saturday. Mm-hmm. So what they normally do is that that gets, when it lands on a weekend or a legal holiday, it gets post shifted to the next Monday. That just so if it's on that Saturday, then tax day is that Monday, which would have been the 17th. So we get three extra days. Or you get the weekend to remember, oh yeah, taxes, and you, get, you <laughs> jump in on that day and take care of it. Well, this year it's different because uh, the 16th, which is that Sunday, is Emancipation Day. Federal holiday marking when President Abraham Lincoln freed the slaves in 1862, or at least signed the document and they, you know. You can look at history for the rest of that. Uh, So when that day falls on the weekend, that holiday shifts to the Monday as a federal holiday. Right? So the IRS has that day off because it's a federal holiday. So they're not working. So that because – so that shifts tax day actually to the 18th, which is the Tuesday. Hallelujah. So it it should be on the 15th, but the 15th is Saturday. Right, mm-hmm. so that should be Monday, but because Sunday is the na- the federal holiday, then that shifts that holiday to Monday, pushing tax day to Tuesday. Wow! So keep in mind, tax day is April eighteenth. It's a deadline for filing your ten forties and such, or to apply for an extension, which I hear a lot of people do. I'm not sure why you want to extend that chaos; just get it taken <laughs> care of. But don't blow off doing your taxes. Uh, a tax attorney says, relax, gather up all your information, and get it done. You put it off. It's just going to hang over your head for you know weeks or months or however long it takes. Just take care of the, your business. Get it taken care of. If you have to pay, just do it. Just bite the bullet. You I know, know people it, complain. Just take care of it. You know what would make this even better is if we our employers gave us that Monday off to do taxes. Yeah, I don't know if it's that kind of holiday. <laughs> it's one of these banking holidays. It's weird. Uh, so take or heed Terry's advice and just get her done. Don't wait until the last minute. Just get, get it, it done. Get it done on the 14th. So you can enjoy the weekend. Yeah. Wow. All right. You've been reminded and you've been warned. Tax day is coming up. Get those taxes in. We'll take a break. When we come back, we'll continue all the fun on the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good Wednesday morning, everyone. This is not Dr. Matt Townsend. And uh, I'm not even sure it's Jeff Simpson this morning because it sounds like I'm starting to come down with something. You know, it's interesting. You know how some days you go uh, 
you go throughout your day without ever having looked in the mirror? Well, apparently, I uh, came to work today without having talked to anybody, and I just started talking, and this is what I sound like. I so, like it. It sounds good. Oh, thank you. Does the, I think maybe the deeper voice is more soothing. Maybe my wife will find it more attractive. I don't know. No, it really sounds like you're sick. Shoot. There's a difference where sometimes it drops an <laughs> octave and you're like, whoa. Other times it just sounds like you're ready to have a nice cold. A nice cold? Yeah, a nice, thorough, really hearty, mm. destructive cold. Maybe it was because I was working on my hot tub yesterday and it was freezing. much colder than it should have been. Right. Yeah, oh. it's it's freezing outside. Yeah, why were you outside? Hot tub. Well, can't you put that off till you know, it's going to be 70 degrees this weekend? Well, it's been about four months since we've drained it, so we're kind of pushing it. All right. I, uh, yeah. I don't want the bacteria to continue to grow. Oh, what's some bacteria? <laughs> yeah. Just throw my like kids in there. It's like you're drinking it. Yeah. It'll, it'll, it builds character. I'm sure my kids are drinking it, though. <laughs> anyway, so uh, hopefully... I can uh, have some time to go sit in the hot tub and and get feeling better or just start feeling worse. Today, Terry, I'm excited to read this, and maybe you can shed some more light on this. Today is Star Trek First Contact Day? Yeah, absolutely. Now, isn't that like the sixth or the seventh movie in the series? Well, if you want to look at them as movies instead of, you know— like a documentary of events that will happen. Interesting. Uh, isn't that kind of the take that the aliens in Galaxy Quest had? No. I've never seen <laughs> Galaxy Quest. Oh, my. Are you serious? Yeah, it looked dumb. What? Okay. It's so funny. Terry. I don't, I don't need an explanation. I, I mean, I'm not going to watch it. So. You're, it's fine. Your let opinion me, is founded okay. on that. I won't explain the movie. Dumb. I won't explain the movie, but let me just say this. When I told my mother-in-law, well, that's probably not a good example. When I told uh, an unnamed person that well, they, well, should, your Hold on. they should watch Stop this everything. movie, <laughs> they had the same reaction that you did. Yeah. And then we sat down and watched it, and they loved it. That's great. 90% on Rotten Tomatoes, which that's I'm great. sure is much better than most of these Star Trek movies. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> especially the first one, which I've never seen, but I've heard is incredibly boring. Meh. It's kind of slow, but it's yeah, good. if it's your thing. No, in the, there's a movie First Contact, and there's a, a date they give, and it's the first time humans, as it says in the explanation, break the warp barrier. And when they do that, then the other other civilizations who have that speed technology through space, that's when they decide to make contact because now you're going to be bumping around the uh, the universe and you're going to cause problems because you know Klingons, they hate people. Okay, now I'm starting to regret asking. Yeah, so. Basically, there's a date. It's like, what's the date? Like 2063 or 2063. Something? I don't know why I remember that from yesterday. I didn't even know this existed until yesterday. But I guess, you know, fans of Star Trek look at this as the day that their story became something more than what it wasn't. Or I don't know. Well, if you're looking for the you movie. You say fans like you're not one. I'm, I don't. I, Star Trek is fine. I don't really. I Like, I've never really watched the original series. I find that completely boring it takes forever yeah so first off. but i mean the, in, in that storyline the humans actually we talked about it if you're trying to get to the, those seven new planets they found it's going to take like a million years 
right? It's impossible for us to ever get anywhere until you figure out a new form of speed. And in this story, that's when they did that. And that's when the story takes off because they start meeting aliens. And that's really what you want to do. That's about how long it would take to get through all of the Star Trek movies. So this, I'm I'm remembering, I'm not a huge Star Trek fan, but I want to say... Number five is like the undiscovered country or something like that. Number six is Star Trek Generations, which is the first film that there's a crossover between the older generation and the newer generation with um, Picard and – Yeah, they they fight or something. And this is the first movie without the older generation. And I believe it's also the movie where Data uh, actually has a personality. Yeah, they put some chip in him. And, yes. I don't know. I, wow. When, I just when, nerded out there. When they had the one movie where they had to go back in time to find some whales to talk to some alien species that was going to destroy the earth because they always came back to talk to the whales. I just kind of went, Wait, so know, the whales were going to destroy the, the earth? Wh- no, the whales talked to the aliens. <laughs> They're tired right? of us. And so <laughs> but in the future, apparently, they the whales are all gone, and so the aliens were going to, you know, Destroy the Earth because you took away all the whales. We haven't been saving enough whales. And so the, huh. the the you know William Shatner, Leonard Nimoy had to go back in time to San Francisco, find some whales, and bring a whale back so he could talk to the aliens. It's just it's a whole thing. How much <laughs> you want to bet Matt would be so jealous dumb. that he's missing this conversation right now? Zero to none. <laughs> well, we need to we need to go back and and uh, just save this portion of the show. We'll and share it for him. Yeah. We'll send it to him while he's on vacation in St. George. Today is also Deep Dish Pizza Day, and uh, Pizzeria Uno's founder, Ike Sewell, is credited with creating the spectacular Deep Dish Pizza in 1943 in, of all places, Chicago. Who would associate Chicago with pizza? So if you like a loaf of bread with your pizza, (laughs) Deep Dish Pizza. (laughs) Oh, goodness. Deep Dish, Thin Crest, Regular just pizza. Doesn't nah, matter. Doesn't answer my question. Pizza's yeah. good. I just like the the yeah. regular crust. Just let's meet in the middle. What classifies as regular? Uh, not thin, not deep dish. There you go. Not a cracker, not a loaf of bread. <laughs> pizza. Yes. Not matzah. Not Man. All right. So celebrate that by uh, eating a deep dish or just eating a pizza any way you want. If you don't feel like a loaf of bread, as Terry said, then just go regular. Some of them get really out of control and they're really thick. Yeah. I don't mind a thicker crust, but man. Yeah, those people can't be trusted. Anyway, uh, all that fun stuff coming up on the show. We'll we'll continue those important topics. And uh, I, I, if, I don't think we've milked them for all that we can yet. But for now, let's head over to Terry South, who's going to give us what's going on around the rest of the country. Terry, what's up? President Trump on Tuesday publicly condemned an apparent chemical gas attack the Syrian government held against an entire town connected to the horrific accident. He connected the horrific incident to President Obama's decision not to take any action after establishing a red line condemning the Assad regime's use of weapons some years ago. He said, today's chemical attack in Syria against innocent people, including women and children, is reprehensible and cannot be ignored by the civilized world, the president said in a statement. These heinous actions by the Bashar al-Assad regime are consequences of the past administration's weakness and irresolution. 
Uh, President Obama said in 2012 that he would establish a red line against the use of chemical weapons and then did nothing. The United States stands with our allies across the globe to condemn this intolerable, intolerable attack. Additionally, according to the Associated Press, Rex Tillerson, Secretary of State, said Russia and Iran bear a great moral responsibility for the deaths resulting from this purported chemical attack. Uh, if you've seen the videos, it's horrible. There are kids people men women dying in the streets they can't breathe there's no wounds on them and they're just breathing some are foaming at the mouth and so there was there was a a parent chemical attack this might be the second time because there's another incident like this where similar people were suffering um but uh, that was when the red line well that brought up the red line comment if they use these chemical weapons now the problem was that president obama said he was going to do something and go after him but he lacked the votes in congress to strike and he was unwilling to go in without congressional approval Mm. uh that tends to ruffle you know everyone's feathers if you don't go to congress they're the ones by the constitution supposed to declare if we're going to go to war per se and do that kind of thing he wanted this wouldn't be go to war but he wanted congress behind him and they didn't want to do it um and so he went with a plan for russia to destroy the chemical weapons stock that assad had and apparently there's still weapons around cbs evening news pointed out the attack came five days after the trump administration signaled that the syrian dictator would not be held accountable for the slaughter of his own people they're just going to pull back and let the people of Syria decide what they want to do with their president. Mm. So five days after Trump says he's not going to do anything about it, he's criticizing Obama because he didn't do anything about it. Sure. So it's like, what are we doing? Just how about we do something about it? Well, it's not his fault. No. Right? So it's it's kind of an interesting uh, tactic to blame behind. I mean, President Obama kind of did that a little bit with President Bush. He's like, well, like, we, we had these situations from the previous administration. What are we supposed to do? You know, no, I, yeah. we bought our car at a Nissan dealership and we went back with some issues and they said, oh, yeah, it, so-and-so sold it to you, right? Well, he's no longer with the company. Yeah, he did that to a lot of people. Right. Like so, somehow it's not their fault. Right. I don't know. We'll see what happens. It's an ongoing story here. Uh, in other news, the O'Reilly Factor is down 20 advertisers with several luxury car makers, pharmaceutical giants, insurance companies, and even a dog food manufacturer pulling their ads from the show after it was reported that host Bill O'Reilly and Fox News paid $13 million to settle with five women who accused O'Reilly of sexual harassment and verbal abuse. Oh, boy. So you got Mercedes-Benz, BMW, T. Rowe Price, GlaxoSmithKline. They're among some of those stopping their ads from running during the O'Reilly Factor. Most of those companies have been released statements condemning uh, the harassment, including Mercedes-Benz, which called the allegations against O'Reilly disturbing. The advertising has been moved from the O'Reilly Factor to other shows on Fox News to kind of kind of mm. gauge what the situation will be. So it's not on his show, it's on other shows. But uh, we'll see where that goes. But you start getting 20 advertisers uh, concerned about what's going on. They start getting uh, nervous. Glenn five Beck, five women, you said? There's five women they paid out $13 million settlement wow. to to try to make them go away. <laughs> Glenn Beck was on Fox News several years ago, and his demise from the network was when the advertisers left. Mm. Or threatened to leave. You know, and so they so decided to make a cut. this kind of could be a so, precursor. But O'Reilly gets big ratings. Mm. He's their highest rated show on the network, so 
there's kind of this push and shove, so we'll see where mm. that goes. Um, moving on, the Trump administration is considering requiring even short-term visitors to the U.S. to disclose contacts on their mobile phones, social media passwords, and financial records, and to answer probing questions about their ideology, the Wall Street Journal reports. While the policy would be part of President Trump's ongoing promise of extreme vetting, the changes would apply to visitors from around the world, including France, Germany, the U.K., Japan, and Australia. Many experts are unconvinced by the uh, proposed approach. The real bad guys will get rid of their phones. They'll show up with a clean phone or not have a phone at all. They'll just ditch it so you won't be able to see what they're doing. But wouldn't that be a red flag if somebody didn't have a phone these days? Not necessarily. Huh. Wouldn't you arrest them because they don't have a phone? Yeah. Hey, get on the ground. <laughs> it's like you should have a phone. I don't know. It's just, <laughs> we'll see what happens. Maybe Trump loves Twitter so much he's got to use yeah. other people's accounts now. Maybe <laughs> we have a guest coming up talking about uh, exactly internet security and personal safety. What you you should do this? She talks about how you come across the border. There's laws there that uh, your phone could be searched, and she'll talk about that a little bit. On um, finally, last year the NFL experimented by letting Twitter live stream ten Thursday night football games. This year they're going to continue that test, but they're going to put it on Amazon. As Amazon has bought the league's rights, $50 million for 10 games, which is more than the uh, $10 million that Twitter paid last year. And uh, also Facebook and Google, well, you, Google wanted it on YouTube. I think they did that before. They had one game, and I watched that. It's kind of a, like I watched a few of them because the game's also going to be bro- uh, broadcast on either NBC or CBS, whoever else has the, the contract there. But it's kind of odd to watch because you're just, Watching it on your phone or on your yeah. screen somehow. Twitter had some interesting things because you had the the screen kind of to the uh, the left where you could watch the game, and on the right you had the the Twitter feed yeah. for the game, which was kind of fun to watch back and forth. But I don't know. We'll see. So you, Amazon's going to air these games live. You can live stream if them? you're a Prime member. See, I don't know if they could be trusted to to deliver those games on time. I think they'll be three days late instead of two days. Yes. Okay. So live means three days after the fact. So you can watch live streaming if you have Amazon Prime, and uh, they'll test it out, and then uh, the NFL will shop it and maybe let Facebook pay more money next year. Because that's really what this is turning into, is just a way to generate cash. Isn't that a nice – that's such a wonderful feeling to just know that you're loved and wanted, and you can just shop around and see who loves you the most. Hmm. Or your money the most. Yeah. Whichever one works. So this year, if right now it's Amazon, maybe next year it's uh, – And it's really gimmicky. You'll, it's Most people I heard just sort of just check it out and then, all right, then they turn their TV back on. Because you want to watch it on a big screen, not on your phone. Why can't they do that with the Dodgers games? Why do they I keep going? Why do they oh, – they have this huge contract. Have they still with... settled that – there was a point where like half of Los Angeles County could not watch a Dodger game. I know. It's ridiculous. Because of the cable subscription Time Warner issues. cable. Oh, my Is goodness. that still going on? Or I think so. Okay. I, I, I was following it for a while, then I got bored because it was just cable wanting more money from people and whatever. <laughs> they would never do that. Always. They constantly do that. Oh, wait. Television never lies. When have I ever – has anybody ever had anything nice to say about cable companies? No. All they want is your money. Yeah. Wow. Well, anyway, uh, coming up as Terry Tees, we're going to be speaking with a guest who who says that we shouldn't uh, be trusted with something. You know, usually you think about uh, men maybe not being trusted to uh, go shopping 
I know sometimes when I go shopping, I bring home the wrong things, meaning I see a bag of chocolate caramel popcorn and I think, oh, that looks like a good idea. Not Muddy Buddies? Oh, that's good too. So I don't think I could be trusted to go shopping. Some other people might not be trusted to uh, to babysit. But our next guest is going to tell us why maybe we shouldn't be trusted with our own passwords. Hmm. Interesting topic when we come back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show on this beautiful Wednesday morning. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt while he's away in St. George. You know, since 2009, U.S. Customs and Borders Protection agents have been able to search electronic devices carried by citizens and non-citizens as they enter the country. It's been suggested that this vetting should also include harvesting social media passwords. This violates the first rule of online security, don't share your passwords. This has caused major problems for private citizens and government employees alike. Here to speak to us today about password protection is Dr. Megan Squire, a professor of computing science at Elon University in North Carolina. Uh, Megan, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Hi, I'm glad to be here. Great, yeah, and thanks for being here. Um, So I teased before we went to commercial, you know, a lot of husbands and fathers probably shouldn't be trusted to go to the grocery store because who knows what they're going to come back with. And, you know, maybe some other people might not be trusted to babysit. But but you're saying that we shouldn't even know our own passwords. Now, explain uh, the thinking behind that. Yeah, so there's a bit of a, a bit of a trip to get there, but um, kind of what I started thinking was, given that um, we can't always um, want to comply with requests for our passwords, for example, at the border or something like that, we might not want to comply with such an order. Um, is there a way that we can state that we don't, not that we just don't want to comply, but that we actually cannot comply? So I don't actually know my own password. I'm unable to know it. I've offloaded that to um, to a machine, for example, or to my own computer. Interesting. So tell us about some of these different methods. I, I know that uh, uh, in some of your writings you've mentioned several different methods and maybe some of the benefits and drawbacks of each of them. Yeah, so the idea is that we would use computer science um, and the things that we know about how the human mind works and how um, our bodies work and things like this uh, to invent new ways to keep our own data um, private without us having to memorize some sequence of numbers and letters. So a couple of the ones that I've been looking at um, would use some combination of biometrics or even some more interesting things like machine learning techniques. So one of them that a lot of people might understand uh, relies on training the subconscious brain to know the password without our conscious brain having to know what the password is. So I guess the best analogy here would be learning to play a musical instrument or maybe playing a video game like a lot of people might have played Guitar Hero. And you end up memorizing this sort of sequence of keys um, to, play a, to play a song. If someone asked you, write down the keys or what were the keys that you played, you, you probably wouldn't be able to do that or it would take a really long time to do it. But the, if I asked you to reproduce it on 
the fake guitar in Guitar Hero, um, you would probably be able to do that. So Especially if it was Sweet Child of Mine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, it depends on what your musical tastes are. But um, yeah, we're asking the subconscious brain to do the work for us. So we're unable to produce the password if we were, for example, under duress or asked to um, when we didn't want to produce a password. Interesting. You, you know, I think for a lot of people that... Uh can be true of of some of the passwords that they do know. Like, for instance, we get uh, such into the habit of of typing in our password as we open up our computer or, you know, as we use the ATM that a lot of times it just becomes more out of sight and uh, feeling the keys than it does actually remembering what the password is. So when it comes down to it, every once in a while I find myself having to think for a few minutes, like, wait a minute, now what is my password? Yeah, exactly. We call that muscle memory. And it's the same thing that lets you be a really fast keyboard typist. Um, your fingers just kind of know what, you know, there's a little, you know, brain finger connection there, I guess. Um, one of the interesting things that people push back with on this idea is they say, well, couldn't I just watch the person type the password and then I would know it? So the research on this type of password also adds another layer where they um, measure the fluidity with which the person typing enters the password. So the faster you're able to type it, the more likely it is that it's actually you and not someone trying to imitate you. Interesting. So could it be just the speed or it, could there be a rhythm element to it? Yeah. Like, for instance, if uh, you mentioned uh, music, you'd have to get the rhythm right in order for the password to work. Exactly. So it's a fluidity of entry, not just um the fact that you got the keystrokes in the right order. Interesting. Okay, so there's that method. What what other options would there be? So, yeah, another one that's kind of interesting, it's a little bit more biometric. In other words, it uses parts of our bodies um, to, to identify us. This one um, came out of Cal State um, Poly Pomona, and it's called Chill Pass. And this one is interesting. So imagine when you're super relaxed and you're listening to very, you know, chill music, um, you get this biometric reaction that kind of, we might refer to it as like a chill going up and down our spine. So that biometric reaction that's individual to each user becomes part of a login sequence. So the idea with this password is that you have um, an individual response to this selection of music, um, which is you know spe specific to that person, but also you have to be very relaxed when you're entering this this login sequence, or else it will not work. Interesting. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so the idea here is that if you had, if you were in a stressful situation, like at the border, and were being, or anywhere really, and were being asked for a password that you didn't feel like giving, um, you would be not relaxed enough to give that password. So while it's probably not practical for day to day, you know, I mean, I unlock my phone a hundred times a day or more, so this is probably not, um, you know, very practical for that. But if we were uh, knowing that we were going to be under a high-stress situation, we might consider a password like this. Megan, are there any other reasons why we shouldn't know our passwords other than, you know, we're in a situation at the border where we are compelled to, to hand over this information? So, yeah, we think about it a lot of times in terms of civil rights, but there are practical reasons why we might not want to know our own passwords, too. We're not very good at remembering passwords, and we have to invent more and more complicated methods for keeping track of all these passwords and remembering to change them, and they keep getting hacked and things like that. So it's we've sort of 
you know, built this house of cards with password managers and so on and pass complicated password protocols, um, it may be time to just not worry about this anymore. Just like we teach little kids to do long division or to calculate square roots, but at some point we hand them a calculator, um, if, especially if we want accuracy, um, high throughput with, you know, doing calculations. We just don't want to rely on our human brains to do this work. So if we think about it in, in those terms, maybe it's time. So just getting back to the scenario at the border, I mean, who exactly does this affect? Does this, how does this affect Americans versus, let's say, somebody that's coming from Mexico that's just trying to visit the United States? How would this affect an American versus somebody from Mexico or Canada? Um, so I guess you're you're asking about the current law. So I should say I'm not a lawyer. I'm a computer scientist. So That's I'm going to okay. give a very you know basic <laughs> basic description of what the current situation is at the border. But right now there's a um, you know there's laws that cover when you enter and exit the country, and those laws um, are a little bit less strict. In other words, what what our rights are um, at the border versus you know in the middle of the country somewhere, not near a border station or near an airport. Um, some of the laws that we have apply, you know, our rights are given to citizens, and of course non-citizens those would not um, apply to. So your question about people coming in from, you said Mexico, um, a technological solution would cover those folks, but currently right now a legal solution that only covered citizens obviously would, would not. So um, there's some things that we can get from a legal solution, and those are great, um, but we also could consider you know, technological solutions that anyone could use and not just American citizens. Megan, let's do this. Let's take a break. Uh, when we come back, let's continue this discussion. I'm curious to know how uh, you you became interested in this uh, topic. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, we'll continue this discussion. I've got a few more questions on this, uh, Let's, but let's first take a break. This is the Matt Townsend okay. Show, helping you live more informed and safer lives. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt while he's away in St. George. And we've been speaking with Dr. Megan Squire, who is a Ph.D. of uh, computing science at Elon University in, in North Carolina. She's also a software developer and database designer by trade. She studies... Uh, Let's see. She studies free Libra and open source software, FLOSS, uh, specifically the collection, curation, and federation of large amounts of textual data. And we've been talking about password protection and why maybe it's not a good idea that we know our own passwords, which is something that seemed totally foreign to me before we started talking, Megan. And I'm, I'm curious to know how you originally became interested in this idea of uh, not knowing our own passwords. Well, this is a bit of a story, but I'll make it brief. So I was at a political protest um, several months ago. And one of the legal observers there who was um, wearing a special hat and was there to just observe what was going on and, um, you know, give guidance when necessary said that anybody 
that was doing the um, nonviolence, civil disobedience should take their thumbprint scanner off of their um, cell phone and put a regular passcode on. And I, I said, what? Why would we want to do that? I, I was, you know, thinking that biometrics would be much more um, difficult to, to crack, you know, if my phone got taken or something like this. And the person started to explain. We got in this long conversation. I almost missed the protest because we got in talking about the difference <laughs> between um, asking for a password that's stored in your mind versus using a thumbprint that's stored on your body. And one of those is protected by the Fifth Amendment, and one of them is um, is not. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so that, that was all news to me. It was very interesting, and I thought, wow, this is a lot more complicated um, than I thought it was. And so I started looking into, you know, just general password laws and stuff. And then finally, I kind of decided to throw in the towel and apply some computer science to this. What if we didn't have to worry about this at all? So that's kind of where I started reading up and researching on um, alternatives to passwords. So Interesting. Um, So before the break, you, you told us about a couple of different ways that we could not know our password, and uh, it would make it more difficult for for people that were trying to compel us to share our password. Um, one of those was the uh, the guitar hero approach that you talked about, kind of having a a uh, rhythmic or you know focusing on the fluidity of the of typing in the password. Um, did we? I can't recall. Did we already talk about the "I'd love to comply, but I can't" approach? <laughs> I mean, that was kind of how I led into this was this idea that, um, you know, nobody wants to, we don't wake up in the morning and decide, I'm going to, I'm going to not comply with what a, you know, an authority is asking me. (laughs) I mean, it's usually not our first choice of how to spend our day, but, um, you know, sometimes we, we may feel that we cannot comply with a request, um, this, my idea was if the answer could instead somehow be, I'd love to comply with you, but I cannot. I literally don't know my password because I'm using this system that doesn't make me know one um, or somehow protecting our data in, in another way. I like to look for um, a technological solution um, if I can, just sometimes for fun because I'm a computer scientist, but also it may end up being a more symmetrical solution, so something that's more um, more fair to both parties. Yeah. So it, I guess there's a scenario where you could – it could be like a, a two-password approach or you've got something that needs – that you need in order to unlock the passcode, but it's in a, a remote location. What can you tell oh, us about yeah. that? Yeah, so a lot of – when this border stuff kind of started coming out in January, February timeframe, there were a flurry of articles and you know, advice from very well-meaning people um, – with some pretty complicated, uh, you know, quote, I'll put them in air quotes, solutions to the password problem. And a lot of them involved things like um, using, you know, turning on two-factor authentication on, on all of your devices and all of your social media accounts and then sending the second factor, which would be the SIM card in your phone, and secretly mailing it to a remote location. I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, this is, you know, A, it's very complicated and most people won't be able to follow this security protocol. And, and B, What's to stop a you know an authority from just asking you to go to the location where you've mailed this and get it and and they'll wait. I mean, there's nothing you know if really? a motivated person could just ask you to do that and you'd be back where you started. So I'm, I you know the, the solutions just didn't feel 
good to me. It didn't, it didn't feel good. Like I could really recommend <laughs> any of those yeah. um, complicated sort of protocols. So I was looking for, and you know, none of the, none of the highly technical solutions I found are available yet either, but it gets you thinking about options and where could we go um, from a science point of view. Yeah. By the way, just, uh, just to, for your information, just, to, yeah. just in case you're curious, I've actually used the I'd love to comply but I can't approach in life. <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> um, not in the way that you would think, though. I mean, when I was in middle school, there was this girl that wanted to date me, but I was too young to be, to, to be allowed to date. And so I literally told her I would if I could, but I can't, so I won't. There you go. And in retrospect, that was probably the dumbest thing that I could have said to her. <laughs> Interesting. Well, yeah. So I've used the I'd love to comply, but I can't. Um, yeah. So I'm just I mean, curious. The alternative, yeah. Well, the alternative go- to that, though, is you know, there's nothing to see here either. We can try to. Um, convince the person that they don't really want to look at whatever we have that that usually doesn't work so we end up in some kind of compliance dance where you know and and my idea was just to to remove the discussion entirely let's just not have this discussion because our technology doesn't even let us so. yeah and you know before we started talking to you terry our producer was talking about how there are some uh terrorist groups who may not even bring a phone or, you know, have very limited access to the phone so that there's nothing that can be accessed by by people they don't want to have access to. And I think that would seems like that would raise flags, too, for somebody in today's day and age to to show up and not have a cell phone. Yeah. So that's the other thing. Um some knee-jerk reactions initially to this world. Well, just don't take your devices with you. And I'm thinking, oh, my goodness. Kenny, have you been on a trip where you didn't need your devices? I mean, <laughs> yeah. you know, what's the first thing everybody does when the plane lands is pull out their phone and, and Facebook about it or something? But it's just, you know, this is in modern life, we need to have our devices with us. And, yes, it's going to arouse suspicion if, if you don't have them as much as um, it would arouse suspicion if you acted sketchy with them or refused to comply. So, you know, it's, it, I'm not very convinced about the argument about leaving them at home. I will say, though, um, you mentioned terrorist groups. So one of the um, sort of side pieces of this whole discussion is the harvesting of social media passwords, which is, I think, a different, slightly different set of concerns than um, asking for a password to a device. In other words, to unlock a cell phone is different than asking for a password to a social media account, slightly we don't usually use biometrics and stuff to to lock down our um, our social media accounts. There's there's a lot more social media accounts that we may have. Um, yeah, so it's just it's just slightly different. Yeah, something else to think about. So I'm curious in your work. Uh, obviously, you you think a lot about passwords, but what are, are are there any applications that you use or that you would suggest over others? Yeah, so I get a lot of questions. What do I do? You know, so my general advice is in three parts. The first bit is we need to have good password hygiene. So we're going to use a different password on each site. That can, and it's got to be a nice, good password, not you know one, two, three, four, five, six, or password, which are. Dang it! You just guessed my password. I know. I always (laughs) do that. Those are still the most common passwords used. Those are terrible. Don't do that. So to help you generate better passwords and to keep track of all these different ones, a lot of folks will recommend a password manager, which is great. Um, Unfortunately, sometimes those get those have exploits or get hacked, whatever. So you need to keep current on the software. 
Um, so that's my first line of defense. I would also recommend closing down accounts that you don't use. So a lot of times folks will make an account um, you know, for some social media service or an email thing, and then they end up moving on and not using that anymore. You should really close those accounts down. Um, it provides a, a stale password that could end up in a password breach somewhere, and then that account could be used to you know, sort of jump into other accounts that you may own. And then the third one I would say, this is a little bit harder, but it's definitely worth it. If the site that you're looking at, the social media site or email or whatever it is you're doing, offers two-factor authentication, and I'll explain what that is in a minute, do it. Do this. <laughs> Take them up on the offer to install two-factor authentication. What this will do is allow you to not just have a password on your account, but also have like a special code sent to your phone or to your um, email or some other um, place. So it's a, it's a two-step sign-in process. So even if your password is um, you know, stolen, you'll still need that second factor, that second piece, um, in order to actually get into the account. Yeah. And, you know, Megan, in, I believe it was in the either the first or second point that you just made there. Yeah. Um, a lot of people will just hold on to these passwords and memberships that they don't yeah. use. But there, another problem is, you know, there are things that I sign up for uh, that I just don't remember signing up for. And so maybe I'm yeah. a member of it and I didn't even I didn't even realize it. You know, and a lot of people can say this about credit cards, too. You know, there's a credit card that they signed up for that they never use. Is right. there is there a way that we can go on our computer and figure out a, a list or see a list of all these things that we have passwords for so that we can then go and, and uh, you know, cancel our membership or get rid of that password? Oh, that's interesting. I wish there were. Probably the best thing would be a lot of times they send you a you know a verification email or something like that. You could um, try to you know spelunk through your old emails and try to figure it out. I really don't know of a of a way to generate post facto that list of um, all the places I've ever signed up. That that's a it's a good idea. Um, I don't think it's going to be quite that easy. We, yeah. Um, a lot of times I'll use as a reminder, though, is if every once in a while some old site will send me some email, you know, and I'll say, oh, man, I remember I signed up for that. I'm going to take right now to delete that account. <laughs> so, um, so take advantage of those little annoying emails that they're sending you, some kind of marketing message or whatever, to go ahead and remind yourself to delete that one. They usually don't, um, if you've created an account at one of those sites, they're probably going to want to bring you back in as a regular user, so they will do things like email you and so on. Um, and those would be the times that that you can shut down the account and just sort of sever ties, I guess. Yeah. So, Megan, just in closing here, you know, we talked about the example of, of uh, U.S. Customs and, and going across the border. What can we do if if we feel like you or if we think that U.S. Customs has compromised our personal information or our devices? What's something that we can do? Yeah, so it's going to be really unlikely that this would happen. But if it does, um, what, what I would recommend is first and foremost, write down everything that happened, how long your device was gone, what you think happened to it, questions you were asked, and so on. 
there's um, then when you get back, Google around for places to report that. Several news agencies and the Electronic Frontier Foundation, for example, are taking reports of what happened so we can start to keep track. And then you need to change all your passwords. <laughs> um, that's annoying, but you're going to need to do that. And then probably let everyone in your life that you know might be affected by you know what happened, let them know so that they can also take measures. Um, for example, if you had sensitive communications or things with your business, your company, um, colleagues, things like that, go ahead and, and let them know um, that that copies may have been made and so on. So it's kind of a, a bad um, it's a bad thing to happen, but it's also very unlikely to happen. So. Well, that's comforting. And, and Megan, we appreciate you coming on to the Matt Townsend Show this morning and uh, really just shedding some more light on passwords. And it's if, if nothing else, it, uh, it helped us to think about the passwords that we do enter and, and the memberships that we do have that maybe we don't uh, use at all. So it's best to be safe rather than sorry. So if you're out there and uh, you have a really weak password or you have a membership to a a site that you no longer use, just make sure that you're safe and uh, keep those updated or just cancel them altogether. Her name is Megan Squire, and she is a professor of computing science at Elon University in North Carolina. She also co-founded and uh, led a project called FlossMole, a team of software developers who write programs to collect and analyze floss data, then freely provide the data and results back to the scientific community. And uh, Megan has been speaking to us about why we shouldn't know our own passwords. We're going to take a quick break. This is the Matt Townsend Show. When we come back, we'll be speaking with our own producer, McKenna Baus. McKenna Baus will be in the house when we return. Welcome to her house. She is McKenna Baus. She is here to break down. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show, and welcome to the House of Baus. It is that time of the week. We get three times during the week where we get to talk to our wonderful producer, McKenna Baus, who is uh, here to tell me that the reason that I'm coming down with this cold might be because I'm feeling lonely. I am so lonely. I have no boo. Isn't there like a chipmunk version of that song? Probably. There's a chipmunk song of everything if yeah, you try that's hard true. enough. It's a really annoying chipmunk song. <laughs> <laughs> so McKenna, what is, what what are you serious? Yeah, so there was a study that was conducted um and what they did is they took um they took some people and they locked them in hotel rooms after having like in like done like nose spray things that had the cold virus in it. And oh my. what? Yeah. What kind of compensation are these people getting? They all because... got over a thousand dollars, which is <clears throat> explains they get to call a in lot. Sick for work. That too. <laughs> um, but what happened is, like at the beginning, they had them, you know, take a little survey, like, "How lonely are you?" on a scale of one to ten, I, I something like that. Hmm. I'm and ten then, lonely. <laughs> And then what they did is they had them sort of report their symptoms. And their loneliness didn't affect whether or not they got sick. But of the people who got sick, those who had, like, 
who ranked as lonely were 39% more likely to report higher severity symptoms. Like, my runny nose is worse because I'm lonely and my throat hurts more because I'm lonely and stuff like that. So is this – I mean, is this more of a psychological thing? Because it seems like, you know, I've got got two kids – and I feel like they're always sick. And so you would think that somebody that is surrounded with other people in their home, there's going to be a bigger likelihood or a greater likelihood that that person will get sick more often. So, you know, there is that exposure to more people is more likely to get you sick. And that's why your loneliness thing doesn't affect if you get sick. It's just how bad your sickness is. Because one of the things that this, you know, they talked about in this article, too, is that social interaction like having a lot of contact with people does not necessarily equal not lonely you can have a ton of social contact with people and still feel very lonely um and so it's that feeling of loneliness as opposed to your actual amount of contact with other people that's what's affected like affecting your symptoms yeah it kind of uh. it kind of seems like there's some psychology here because there are certain people that probably get plenty of attention but they kind of suffer from the woe is me syndrome yeah or they know? just like feel like i can't connect with nobody all these people nobody yeah yeah and so i think those somebody's crying gonna... out for help right here <laughs> nobody gets you you okay there <laughs> i'm sick um but it's interesting because there has been some, you know, past research too that, you know, people who are more isolated and I mean, if you are more isolated, you're more likely to be lonely. But some of these people who have, you know, more isolations are more likely to suffer from heart disease and things like this. And mm. just generally, what they're thinking is that your emotional state, particularly when it comes to relationships with other people and loneliness, does affect your immune system. That when you're mentally not feeling good, your body physically isn't going to be on its, you know, top game and that you're going to be more affected by your symptoms. I think another thing that was just interesting is the idea that I I wonder if you're feeling lonely, you know, you just don't have anything else to distract you and maybe your symptoms just feel worse because you're just so focused on it. Um, Another thing I was just wondering, I don't know if this is why the man cold is so bad. Maybe guys are just more lonely than girls. <laughs> yes, we are. We are. Because guys don't go on man dates, but girls go on girl dates. Yeah. I don't know, man. I go on man dates every once in a while. But you're still lonely, so it's not working. Yeah. <laughs> hey, anyway, I'm just curious real quick. Uh, did it say how many people were in this study? And you, you mentioned that they were in a – they put them in a hotel. Yeah, so there were 159 participants, um, and they ranged in age from 18 to 55, so they sort of, you know, ran the gamut there. Um, Yeah, and they were in a hotel for five days. Wow. See, that is why they really got sick, because they stayed the night in a hotel where they don't wash those uh, comforters and all sorts of other disgusting... All those dust mites and... Yeah, Hotel, not the cleanest place to. Uh, also, you know they kind of got injected in their nose with you know the virus. So yeah, it's mostly the hotel. <laughs> it's an incubator for discussing. Like exactly, I, I like going on vacation and going to hotels. Don't because they all me smell like okay. bleach and, and I pine salt. Just uh, yeah, there are certain things you should never touch in that room. 
Most most things you should never touch in the hotel room. Anyway, McKenna, you've done it again. And, uh, man, sounds like I need to go associate with more people and then I'll be healthier. Get your mandates in. I'm yes. here for you. Okay. All right. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, uh, well, you'll hear the BBC News first. But then we're going to continue the fun with Deep Dish Pizza Day as well as First Contact Day. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. <laughs> 